0: Welcome to the Open Apple Podcast, where we celebrate the Apple II. Whether you're a longtime user, a nostalgic visitor, or a newcomer to the community, join us as we share news and memories of Steve Wozniak's most famous personal computer. Hello and welcome to Open Apple. This is episode 41 of the number one co-ed-hosted monthly Apple II Podcast. If you can find a better Apple II Podcast, then listen to it. I am Coin your co-hostess with the mostest, and with me as always is Mike McGinnis. How are you doing, Mike?
1: That's me. I'm doing well, and I'm the other voice you normally hear on this podcast. I'm doing all right. It's been sort of, um, well, sort of an interesting week. I, I managed to crack the screen on my shiny new iPhone six plus, and it's been a bit of an adventure getting the getting the screen repaired. But uh, I think in the long run, it was probably the wisest decision to go ahead and pay the extra money and have them do that.
0: Oh, so you did end up getting it repaired.
1: Well, I did. Actually, I, I took it to... So uh, jumping back a little bit, if you pay attention to my tweets, God help you if you do. Uh, I complained recently about the... There's a, an Apple store that's like two miles from me, and I've gone there a couple of times, and it's always been the same experience. They ignore me. It's hard to get service. I, I ordered my iMac online from Apple and had them deliver it to that one and it took them like an hour to bring it out from the back and when they did the guy just kind of shoved it into my hand and said here you go and which you know I'm not I'm not saying that I should have special attention because I'm spending extra money there but it was kind of a large purchase and usually you know Apple stores are known for their the quality of their service and if you buy something like that they'll you know they'll make sure that you have the training that you need and do you need any help setting this up and this guy was just like here and so and it's been a consistent thing. You know, I could understand like a bad day or somebody's just kind of in a bad mood. But every time I've gone in there, it's been like that. Well, apparently I had to learned my lesson. Uh, so I went back there and they said, uh, it's going to be $129 to repair that, sir, which, hmm, it's kind of expensive, but it's an expensive phone, I guess. I thought, well, maybe I'll think about it. And I ended up going to another Apple store, which is further away, but I've always had great service there. And they, Saw my Kansas Fest t-shirt, and I got a bunch of questions about the Apple II, and I took my Rev 0 Apple II in to show them, and everybody took pictures, and they were impressed, and so impressed, in fact, that they said, well, we'll go ahead and wave the fee to fix that screen for you. So I'm actually really happy.
0: Nice! Wow, yeah. way to way to play the Apple II card. That was <laughs> yeah, that's well done. I, I, I'm
1: kind of of two minds on that. So like, you know, if if I take the Apple II in, are they going to go like, what are you doing? We're trying to work here. Can you just go away with that? Yeah, you know, or are they going to be enthused? And they were pretty enthused. So that was that was kind of cool. And they they gave the gray haired old man some attention, and that was
0: nice. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's been my experience as well with Apple two stores. With Apple two stores, <laughs> Apple if, two if, stores. if only, yeah, uh, only with with Apple <laughs> stores. That uh, yeah, some of them are. I, I would even go as far as to say most of them are great. But yeah, there are some where I've had really uh, bad uh, bad service, and it does seem to be store specific. Uh, some stores are, seem to be always good, and some are always bad. But uh, yeah, that's that's great, and you know, and there are genuinely uh, we've heard stories like that before that there are genuinely Apple two or Apple fans, I should say, in, working in Apple stores. You know, they aren't just employees, so uh, they seem to, by and large, appreciate uh, the old stuff. So. Yeah, what a, what a fun story! Did you? I don't suppose you took any pictures of
1: uh of well, the Well, ER? the device that I would have taken pictures with was what they were repairing. Ah, uh, so, right, yes. yeah, <laughs> not me. But there were there there were plenty of other people taking pictures of themselves with the Apple II, and so maybe some of those yeah. will show up on Instagram or something. I don't know.
0: <laughs> that's funny yeah i mean i like my iphones but i think your experience with the six plus is is uh not uncommon i mean i'm hearing a lot of friends have had similar uh durability issues with it It seems to be seems like they may have apple may have just crossed the line between style and durability there it seems to be a little too thin and and uh, svelte for its own good
1: well here's the thing i i I would have been, I guess, less disappointed if I had, if I had dropped the thing on tile floor or something and it's, man, okay, I get that. That happens. This was the phone and my keys in my pocket. I sat down on my couch and you know, you kind of have that. Like when you think back, did I hear it crack, or did I feel it pop in my mm-hmm. pocket? But whatever it was it it was there was definitely an um, an audible i guess pop, and I pulled it out, and the screen was shattered and it looks like the key ring and maybe the tip of one of the keys kind of pushed at, at just the wrong places you know on on the screen mm-hmm. and, and to disturb the surface tension and it shattered very nicely um, so that was sort of disappointing but I did learn my lesson about where, which pocket I'm keeping my keys in and which one the iPhone goes in and they shall never share the same pocket again. <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah, I can. It would be disappointing because it's not exactly an unusual use case. There, I mean, yeah, you put it in your pocket. I mean, that's what people do with their phones. So it, uh, you would hope it would survive that. <laughs> so and it does seem to be a bit of an outlier. I mean, my iPhone four and five uh, and my th- original three G that I bought have all been basically bulletproof. I mean, I've dropped them on concrete floors from five feet up. You know, dozens of times, and mm-hmm. you know they're dinged up, but they. Uh, they don't break a sweat so uh but yeah the 6 plus just seems to be shattering when people look at it funny i don't know what's going on there
1: yeah it's it's really thin and it's very slippery so if you don't have like a kind of a rubberized case or anything the the back of this thing the, the aluminum is just like there's like low friction or something like that because it's you know I, I felt like there was the the car they described in the the restaurant at the end of the universe the hot black's car which was they would reach out and touch it, and they couldn't feel it because there was, there was no friction. You know? <laughs> That's right, right. That's sort of what I feel like when I'm dealing with this phone and I take it out of my pocket. I'll just be handi- holding it, and it'll just sort of like start slipping. So very, yeah. very unusual. But I'm I'm overall, I'm very, very happy with the service that I got at the second Apple store that I went to.
0: That's cool. Well, I hope some pictures of that RevZero uh, Apple II in an Apple store show up because that, be, uh, that would be a great photo to have.
1: Well, what I'll probably do is take it back today. Um, they're at zero, and, and I'm sure there'll be a different staff there. and, and Oh, yeah, good and, idea. Uh, I'll have the phone working so I can take some photos of them with it. So
0: Okay, awesome. Yeah. Well, yeah, if that works out, then we will definitely uh, put that in the show notes. It'll either be that or they'll say, uh, get the hell out of here, old man. So. <laughs> yeah, stop bothering us. That's right. We have work to do. <laughs> yeah. Go be
1: nostalgic somewhere else.
0: <laughs> so, uh, well, contrary to uh, popular impression, after that we are not an iPhone podcast. So, uh, <laughs> shall we move on to some <laughs> Apple II news? Yeah, let's uh,
1: let's get to it. I, I think we've got an interview first, and then we'll, we'll do some news. So, uh, here's us talking to somebody. <laughs> Hi, this is Charles Mangan, and you're listening to Open Apple. I thought about it long and hard today. I'm trying to come up with a good introduction for this month's guest. And really, the truth is, I could probably spend an entire podcast just talking about everything that he's done for the Apple II community and the software and uh, all the amazing stuff. Uh, And and in fact, he needs no introduction at all. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, with us this evening is Randy Brandt himself, Mr. Beagle Brothers, Mr. Uh, Appleworks, Mr. Gem Software. Hello, Randy.
2: Hello, Mike. Hello, Quinn.
0: Well, hello. We're certainly certainly happy to have you here.
2: I'm happy to be here. Listen to you many times, and going back to actually before you were around, and it was Mike and Ken, I've listened to every episode.
1: Awesome. That's a lot of listening.
2: It is, but hey, when you work at home on computers, you can listen to stuff during the day. Oh, I'm
1: so jealous. We, we like to ask everybody, and, and I'm not very creative as... Uh, for ways to come up with this. Um, Randy, what was your first experience with, app, with Apple computers?
2: First experience with Apple was in college, um, 1980, 81, 82, and there somewhere. Uh, some nice person, and I will be forever in their debt, although I don't know who they are, but somebody donated an Apple II Plus to the college uh, for the geophysics department. And they decided to put it in the school library because they didn't really have uh specific classrooms for that major. And so they built a nice uh nice case for it and put a locking locking lid on it and had a library card. So instead of a book you'd sign out the computer, and after I filled out two complete cards where I was the only one on the card, they gave me my own key. <laughs> And then I happened to have a buddy who was a security guard who would illegally let me into the library after hours.
0: <laughs> That's a pretty good little racket.
2: It was a great deal. Not only that, he's moonlighted as a security guard at an apartment complex. And one day I was playing sabotage or writing basic or something. And I hear a kind of a thud and I look over and he dropped a box next to the computer and it was full of magazines. And he said, I think you might like these. I found them next to a dumpster. I was walking by yesterday and it was call apples all about applesoft and a stack of nibbles and call apples. And that's what introduced me to 6502 programming and the rest is history.
0: So then uh, how did you move from sort of hobby use into the professional side of it?
2: Well, I guess professional technically would be when you sell something, right? So, I think that's uh, the definition, sure. <laughs> my girlfriend at the time, now my wife of over 30 years, was like me, was an in- education major. But she was ahead of me uh, with her student teaching. I got the bright idea of writing a program to help her keep track of her grades, input grades. And I called it Grade Aid. And uh I started off with individual variables for everything and that was horrible until I understood how arrays worked. (laughs) Things got a lot easier then. I wrote it in Applesoft with a few uh ampersand 6502 utilities for stuff like searching and and sorting quickly. And uh fine-tuned that, sold it for ten bucks a pop. Oh man, five, six years. Later, I ran into a teacher and said he still used it for doing all of his grades, and so that was my first product, and that was Gem Software. Gem coming from my girlfriend's initials, Joanna Ellen Morrison. And oh, when we got okay. married, Jeb Jeb Software sounded a little Appalachian, so we stayed <laughs> with Gem.
0: <laughs> Jeb,
1: <laughs> Randy, you and I have talked. Uh, In the past before, and as I recall, there was a a story about a K-Pro and an Apple IIc.
2: Yes. Uh, Well, I was getting very serious. I don't know if we were engaged yet or if we got engaged the following summer, but um, we went up to um, my girlfriend's home in Washington, and uh, while we are up there, her dad had, was a businessman and we went down to neighbors who had a Capro, used Capro for sale. And cause he said he was interested in maybe having it for his business. And I got all excited, told them I'd, you know, buy it and I'll, I'll write software for you. You know, I'll create a database application for you to track your, you know, at the time you had a cattle ranch, you know, track all your cattle statistics, whatever they are. He expressed some interest, but then he, um, he's like, well, I don't know, you know, I'm, I'm not sure I need this. So Christmas day, we, we got up and we're exchanging presents and, uh, I had a little package. It seemed felt like a book and I opened up the book and what would you find but a K Pro manual? And mm-hmm. then he grinned and went around the corner and handed me the K Pro. He said, well, I don't think I need it for my business, but you seem so excited that it seemed like a good Christmas present for you. <laughs>
1: okay. So, so now you've got your, your, your Apple 2C, and, and how did you get from having a, a 2C, trading that for, for K-Pro, to working at, at Beagle?
2: Well, I was at a, a company that was involved with the FM network, startup network, and things were just not looking not looking good there for long-term health. I, did, I didn't I did see the concept taken off, so I quit and uh, was, was looking for other work. And I used to hang out by the—I uh, forget the name of them by now—but but they had a primarily Apple, but I think it was an all-around computer store in uh, El Cajon where we were living. And so the guy there, you know, said, "Well, you're—you know—you can program, and you're interested in this stuff. You should apply at Beagle Brothers or somewhere." Well, I bought Merlin there, and I said, "Well, Roger's in the area, so I should go apply at Roger Wagner because he was in Santee, I believe, which is right next next door." I went down to Roger and. Got to see his uh, Lisa, which was pretty cool because I'd never seen one of those before. But he wasn't he wasn't really interested. And I wasn't really optimistic about going to Beagle because, you know, I said, well, their manuals are all spelled correctly and all that. I'm an English major. You know, I wanted to. <laughs> 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 Unfortunately, uh, Roger Wagner Publishing had some great software, and they had more typos in their manuals. I thought they could use my English expertise a little more. <laughs> But uh Roger wasn't interested, but Bert, well, actually what happened was I got a call from Sharon, you know, after I sent in my letter. Oh, I, I better tell you the other precursor to that. My wife made a spelling mistake on Sierra Vista, which was the street that Bert and Sharon lived on, which was the Beagle address. I think she put in one R for Sierra or something, and, and I said, oh, it's spelled wrong, and I want to get a job as an English major and help out with writing. <laughs> um, and we were out of stamps. And I said, oh, just stick an R in there. You know, I said, we're not going to get the job anyway, you know, so it doesn't really matter and don't waste the stamp and, you know, don't want to go to the post office and buy another one. So just stick an R in there and stick it in the mail. So my wife did. And to my surprise, I got a call and said, hey, this is Sharon Kersey, Beagle Brothers. And I went, yeah, yeah, I know, I recognize the name. And she said, Bert, Bert doesn't like talking to people much. It's really hard for, he's a friendly guy and it's really hard for him to say no to people. And so... He doesn't actually want to talk to you because then it might be hard for him not to hire you because he's such a nice guy. (laughs) So, so what he did is he gave, he wants to give you an assignment. So he's going to send you a upcoming pending Beagle product and he wants you to write some documentation for it. And then if he likes the documentation, we'll talk some more. So I said, great. Yeah, send it over. So they sent me a disk that had a couple of programs on it that were uh, destined for the Extra K and ProBiter packages were being uh, developed at that time. Mark Simonson, Alan Bird were working on those. And then Bert and uh, Jack Cassidy had some involvement in the other ones. And so I wrote some docs for one of, uh, I think it was Mark Simonson's programs. I had a little utility of my own that I threw on there and I put it all on a disc. And I still have that five and a quarter inch floppy to this day that I mailed to Bert. I got it back from him later. You booted it up and it was, you know, a, a greeting thing and then had my had my stuff on there. Well, anyway, obviously he must have liked it because uh, I got a call from Sharon a few days later and she said, Burke, like what he saw, come on down and let's do an interview face to face. So I got to do the, uh, oh, you know, longed for trip to actually walk into his house and of course, you know, you're standing there, you ring the doorbell and it says push once for trap door, push twice for doorbell. <laughs> And you look down, and there's a you're standing on a square of wood that's a different color than the rest of the porch. And meanwhile, there's a oh yeah, you're like okay, that's how fantastic. do I get to two without one? But uh, I thought, yeah, this is definitely the right house. That's <laughs> got to be the right address. There was a clutching hand reaching up in the window. I think it was electric, you know, animatronic, so the hand was kind of twitching. So I, I walked in, and you know, there's a coffee table with the uh, cowboy boot legs and. She said, Well, Bert's uh it was Sharon greeted me at the door and said, Bert's upstairs, and so I, I walked up and there was the Beagle Brothers' office up in, in Bert's house and got to meet him, and by the end of the interview he offered me a job and I tried to play it cool, but inside I was like, Are you kidding? You could offer me <laughs> ten cents an hour just to work at Beagle, I'll take it, you know. But he offered me a living wage and uh that was my my new job. And uh that went on for well, let me finish that day. He said, you want to go down to the office and meet the guys? I'm like, well, well yes, <laughs> I <laughs> certainly do. So we went down to the Beagle office and Alan Bird was doing tech support and uh, met the office ladies and I think Rob Renstrom was working on some printer drivers for triple dump. And I don't know if Mark Simonson was in the office that day or if he came in. I, I, I If I didn't meet him that day, I met him the next time. But then uh, they had a wall that had all the Beagle products in order of release. And so every time a product came out, it went on the wall. And And Bert said, are there any of these that uh, you don't have you'd be interested in? Well, I'd purchased GPLE, which was the program editor. But there was a couple of the newer ones, like Alan's Decode for debugging BASIC. And uh, I was in heaven because Bert pulled a couple off of the stack they had. And I went home with a few new pieces of Beagle software. And then he told me, oh, by the way, you need to switch. Uh, I had Apple Writer, and he said, we're uh, we're going to go Apple Works as our standard word processor. Well, of course, I had no idea that would be a life changer for me. <laughs> but uh, that was my introduction to Beagle Brothers, and uh, I worked on on products for them for a while. I did my Big U product. Then Alan decided to work at home more, and I went in and took his job and worked in the office doing tech support for it was less than a year, I don't know, 6 months maybe, 8 months I I worked in the office itself, drove down to Old Town. But um, most of my time with Beagle I, I worked from home and we got together on Fridays to have lunch and pool our ideas and show off what we'd been working on.
0: So the uh, so Beagle Brothers were so well known for the uh for the tone of the documentation and and you know their posters and everything everything was it was all very irreverent and tongue in cheek and it was fun to read. Uh, was that sort of reflected in the culture of the office and the team?
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, like I said, I mean, even Bert's house, you know, with the trap yeah. door uh, walking in the front door. Um, yeah, the ho- it was a great place to work. I mean, everybody got along. It was a very pleasant atmosphere. Like Sharon was a great office manager. You know, I mean, she was firm. She was a good businesswoman. But she also knew that, you know, I mean, she married Bird. Obviously she had a sense of humor too. You know, he was, he was a crack up. I mean, he was just always like, for example, when I walked into his office, he had three clocks on the wall, you know, the, the big kind of like railway station clocks. And then, you know, underneath they have the times for the different time zones. Mm-hmm. And his were, his were San Diego, San Francisco, and Seattle, <laughs> all set to the same time, of course. <laughs> uh, and, that's uh, funny. you know, it was just stuff, yeah, stuff like that nonstop. I mean, Bert, Bert just always had, had funny stuff. And in fact, uh, I was cleaning up the other, like literally this week and I found a letter from 1989 that he sent to my daughter, Heather, who was two years old at the time here's a photo of our dog, Roger. And what he did was he put Roger peeking over a top of a desk and then he put his hands up there. So it looks like Roger's got human hands, you know, kind of the old Kilroy was here thing, you know, the head looking over the top with the hands. And so, I mean, he was just always finding time to do funny stuff like that and making it a fun place. And Fridays were just awesome because we'd all drive in Alan, Mark, me later on, Dan Vercade, um, and rob renstrom and we'd all just get together and go get uh i mean we were such regulars that uh, the waitresses knew what we wanted and we'd get our food and chat and then we'd go back to the office and everybody would show off their stuff and it was just you know bouncing ideas around and it was just a lot of fun because we worked at home monday through you know thursday and then friday we'd uh we'd kind of just brainstorm together in the office so you can't have more fun i mean it was just an awesome place to work
0: it sounds fantastic so what um how did that sort of wrap up then? Like, where, what brought it all? Well, up?
2: Bert decided to kind of retire and move on to other things, so uh, he sold it. Well, what happened, I could back up a little bit, is Mark and Alan spun off Software Touch. Uh, they decided to start their own company, and they released a couple of products, and that was right when I was doing uh, the macro work, Super Macro Works, Ultra Macro, so that that really took off. There was kind of that move towards doing some AppleWorks stuff instead of just the AppleSoft utilities, and then Mark and Alan did some stuff that was AppleWorks related. And then Alan had the timeout idea, and they just felt like you know it was hard to start a new company, and and they were making money, but Beagle had such a bigger name, and Bert was thinking of retiring, and you know Mark decided he wanted to buy out Alan and buy out Bert, and and he would run Beagle Brothers and switch the focus, and that's what that's what happened. So Bert, uh, Bert went on to do railroad model railroading stuff. He was he made little railroad ties, like little rubber ties to dampen the sound and on your railroad, and sold a ton of those, and had a newsletter like Beagle style for model railroaders. Just kind of enjoyed retirement. And Mark ran the company, and we switched focus to. More of a business company and they, you know, did the word processor stuff and the Mac stuff down the road. So when Mark made the changes, then, uh, you know, things, things started switching around a little bit. And I just decided I'd visited a friend in Colorado and decided to come out here. And I'd already done a couple of gem software products that were too small for Beagle. And so we all just kind of went our, went our separate ways at that point, which would have been right around 1990. And then Beagle sold to WordPerfect and uh, WordPerfect took over the the Beagle Mac word processor stuff, and and Mark worked for WordPerfect, and Mark Munz went up there and worked there as well in Utah. So, yeah, 1990 was kind of the the year that things started spreading apart. Alan and Rob Rinstrom formed, uh, and John Obrick formed uh, Westcode Software and published several products there. So we kind of split into about three companies
1: at that point. It's a lot of uh, Beagle DNA all over Apple software. It sounds like.
2: Yeah, yeah, and of course before that, you know, we had uh, we had the whole timeout wave, so that was huge. You know, we we did the new AppleWorks for Claris, you know, the two point one, I believe it was, and and AppleWorks three point and then the whole timeout stuff, and that was huge from eighty seven, eighty eight, eighty nine. You know, the, those are the glory years of of timeout was eighty seven to eighty nine.
1: Now was that with uh quality software?
2: No, that was before quality. That was all Beagle Brothers. In nineteen ninety, I moved to Colorado and I was doing a few few things and and doing gem software stuff and still doing some stuff with Beagle and doing some other stuff on the side. And then a couple years later I just I still had ideas. I thought, you know, there's still some more stuff that needs to be added to Apple Works. And that's when I contacted, uh, or I th- actually, I think Joe Gleason from Quality contacted me first and said, Hey, have you ever thought of doing more with Apple Works? And we worked out a deal with Apple. And funny story on that, they Apple lawyers didn't want to let us do it. You know, they didn't want to have Apple Works out of anyone's hands and all that stuff and legal names. And we finally just told them, Look, we're going to do it. You know, if you don't want to be a part of it and make money on the licensing, we're just going to release a giant patch disk that <laughs> modifies Apple <Works> anyway. <laughs> so, I mean, the consumers are going to get Apple Works for 4 whether, you know, kind of whether you like it or not. <laughs> so, do you want to make some money off of it and let us use the name or do we just make it a giant patch disk and call it something else? And uh, they saw the light and let us call it Apple Works 4 and and then later on, of course, Apple Works 5.
0: That's a pretty uh, bold uh, gambit to use on Apple, especially uh, Steve Jobs.
2: Well, you know, I don't think Jobs cared what was going on in the Apple II world. He was That's he true. was all locked in on the Mac world, and but you know, I mean, the bottom line was is they'd been supportive of patch disks. There were many of them out there and modifications, so they couldn't suddenly say, "Well, you can't do this." It's like this is going to be the patch disk because I told the I told Joe I said, "Really, what we're going to do is we're going to ask them to insert their AppleWorks disk." And then instead of patching it, really what we're going to do is we're just going to delete the files on there and then write a whole new set onto it. Basically, basically, they're going to get a whole new Apple works, but they have to prove that they have it first. It would, it all, it all worked out well. And we sold, we sold quite a few. And, you know, then we had some more ideas. And I was, I worked with Dan Vercade. He had done some timeout report writer and some other stuff. And so Dan and I worked together on, uh, on Apple works four and and then later on Apple works five.
1: Uh, at one point, you um, you told me a story about um, bonuses and a sort routine.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's probably my favorite one related to that. Well, Claris had us purchase uh, Mac Twos, so that was the switch. I already had an SE thirty uh, to go along with. By then, we had two GSs, but they didn't have a compiler. You know, we wanted to do it in Merlin because that's what we all use, Merlin Pro. But they said no, it's a MPW. Compiler on the Mac, so we've got to switch to that. So they gave us a good deal. We all bought Mac 2s. You know, we got Apple Works building, we got things going. And they on the contract, they had certain milestones. So it was like, well, you've got to, it's got to be doing A, B, and C, you know, by November 30th. And you get, you know, you get a thousand bucks. And if you don't get it done by then, you don't get paid that. You know, it's like an incentive bonus or whatever. And really, they were only paying us enough to, barely justify it the reason we wanted to do it was because we were going to put some good hooks in for timeout, and we were going to learn a lot and you know we were going to have the inside track but it's not like they were paying us a lot of money for the project so those so-called bonuses were really just to bear survival money well on the database which i was doing it had to sort. We had to expand the database. I had to rewrite a bunch of stuff because the the number of records were very limited, and uh, they wanted to expand it to, I don't know, like triple or quadruple, whatever the number of records it could handle. And so I had to have a working sort routine. Well, because of the time of everything, I just, it was tricky because, you know, as you know, Apple II, you're working in a limited amount of space, and you're overlaying code and shuffling things around and pulling tricks to, to make stuff work because it's got to work on a 2E, you know, not just on a 2GS or something, which has a lot more memory accessibility. So I I talked to the guy at Claris, who was a great guy, and I said, man, I, I don't know how I'm going to get this sort routine done. I mean, I've been working on other stuff, and it's crazy because it's pretty complex. There's a lot of trickiness doing. he goes, well, the contract doesn't say anything about what type of sort routine. It just says it has to be able to sort. I went okay (laughs) so I knocked out that same day I wrote a bubble sort (laughs) and for those of you that aren't programmers a bubble sort is a very simple sorting algorithm but it's also very slow when you start getting a lot of data because you're scanning through the whole list and just saying okay you know which one's the first one which one's a little bit bigger than that and you're moving a ton of data around just to works great if you're sorting 10 items if you're sorting 2000 or 5000 it starts getting pretty onerous so anyway i wrote i wrote it and i sent it in and i i get a call from claris tech support that was worked involved in testing you know a day or two later and they go your sort routine doesn't work and i said yes it does and they said we loaded in a full-size database and um it was it locked up and i said well how long was it running they said well we left it for like eight hours, and I said, "Yeah, wait a little longer." <laughs> <laughs> and uh, about nine and a half hours later, it, it everything sorted perfectly. There it was. I got my I got my check. By the time I got paid for it, that so called bonus. Uh, by then, I had the actual sort working, and I think it went from nine and a half hours to three and a half minutes.
0: <laughs> what uh, so out of curiosity, what sort routine did you end up using?
2: Um, it was a modified quick sort.
0: Okay.
2: It it kind of did a couple of tricks because we're sorting on three levels. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, like you could you could select three levels deep. I remember getting a good tip from Alan Bird on that to speed that up. But um, it's been so long. But it was it was like a partially quick sort algorithm with some merge sort stuff in there. Okay. You got to remember, we're talking uh, early '90s. You know, it's been 20 years. Sure.
0: Now,
1: um, Beagle, of course, is is known for uh, utilities and you know a little maybe I guess if you want to call AppleWorks business software then business software as well. But you guys never did a lot of as whimsical as you were. You didn't do a lot of gaming or or anything like that except for a title called IO Silver.
2: Well, actually, there was one before that, uh, Beagle Bag. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Beagle Bag, where a bunch of games that Burt wrote in BASIC. And um some of them were very quirky and very very beagle, but they weren't um you know there was no high, sp- wasn't really high speed animation and stuff. they were all pretty much written in applesoft and then what happened was a guy named Brad Wilhelmson was teaching in Japan, teaching English over there in the early eighties, and he bought an Apple II I think it was probably in a, a two plus um it was right around eighty two or so and so he 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 was really interested in sound. And was playing around with the audio and getting the speakers to make funky noises and all that. And then he had the idea of doing a game where he could do sound effects and, and he came up with the, uh, the concept for IO Silver, which was, um, you know, shoving these chips around to, to make integrated circuits and, and build computers and, and that kind of stuff. And so the bugs chasing you and they've all got little custom sounds bleeping and and making noises and and so he had a lot of fun with that put it together and he was a beagle brothers fan so he thought might as well pitch it to beagle he did and eventually uh you know bert decided to go ahead and and publish it that would have been 1984 uh 30 years ago and so uh that was the first full-blown you know 6502 assembly language full-blown game instead of little you know, kind of little novelty AppleSoft Basic. This was a full-blown game being sold as a single game. Beagle Bag probably had ten or fifteen little games on it. Isle Silver was, you know, one-shot deal. It was DOS 3.3, color or monochrome, and you could use a joystick or keyboard and all that. So I mean, it was a, you know, it was a real Apple II game.
0: And, in fact, more than that, the, the polish level on it was really high. I mean, it had, uh, you know, great documentation and you could configure, you know, the controls and, you know, that, that level of polish was not very common, uh, for games of that period. Was that, was that intentional? Like, is that something that, you know, Beagle Brothers like to see or was that just that particular?
2: Brad was a very thorough guy himself, and then with with Bert agreeing to publish it, then Bert you know he has had high standards as, you know, if he was going to try doing a game, he wanted it to you know to be a professional quality game that people would uh, be impressed by. Unfortunately, it never really took off most of the diehard Beagle fans you know may i apparently weren't that big into gaming because a lot of Beagle buyers didn't buy i o silver but those who did, you know, it was a diehard following. I mean, there were, for example, my wife is not a gamer by any means, but when she was pregnant with our daughter, she was having trouble sleeping and I showed her IO Silver and, you know, next thing I knew it was two o'clock in the morning and she was still playing. So, <laughs> you know, I thought that was a pretty good sign if a non-gamer could sit down and play it for four hours straight.
0: Yeah. And that's, so. that's the thing about these old games. They're just as much fun today as they were back in the day, you know. That
2: doesn't change. No. And especially if they're games that are, you know, use some logic and and uh, require a little bit of a li- little bit of thinking. You know, my game sabotage was kind of fun, but that didn't really take a lot of logic. It was to learn how to shoot the the parachutes and the paratroopers and there was one called Microwave I played on the on the Apple II that was kinda of cool. Yeah, I
0: remember Microwave. I liked that one too.
2: It had good sound effects. Yeah, it did. Good little animations. And Pac-Man, you know, there was the, everybody had a Pac-Man for every computer that was out there. But IO Silver was, uh, you know, I think it was kind of unique in terms of the lo- amount of strategy and, and thinking, you know, for a non-role-player type game, adventure game, you know, an action game that still involved logic and that. It was it was a pretty cool mix.
0: So, uh, so the story of IO Silver is not yet over. Uh, why don't you tell us uh, what's going on now with it?
2: Well, let me uh jump back a little bit and when Beagle went to timeout and and Mark bought Beagle, you know, there wasn't really a niche for it because, you know, the the focus was on the timeout series and like uh you know somebody said earlier maybe more of a business uh focus to Beagle and so IO Silver just didn't fit and uh so they weren't really interested in in publishing it anymore and it wasn't selling much anyway and I talked to Brad and said, "Hey, why don't you let me do a ProDOS version?" through gem software and he said oh that'd be a great idea i'd love to see it resurrected and you know prodos is the thing everyone's doing nowadays so uh we did a prodos version and and so gem software actually published io silver for several years from 89 to the early 90s before it kind of faded away and then nothing happened for a long time and 2012 a couple years ago i got a call from ross lambert he was the publisher of a magazine uh, for Apple II and uh, Ariel Publishing. Did several Apple-related things. I'd met him at an Apple Fest uh, up in San Francisco, I think, in '87. We'd become good friends, and and Ross uh, just called me up and said, "Hey, you know, I think we should resurrect IO Silver. Let's uh, let's think about that, and it'd be a fun game. And even if it doesn't sell, we got something fun to play ourselves." And I said, yeah, you know, <laughs> it'd be great. Even if nobody buys it, I'll have fun playing it again. And Jay Jennings uh, was a guy that had been involved. If you guys remember Soft Disk, mm-hmm. and um, he had his punkware software. He did utilities for um, APW, I think. And he, you know, he was a known Apple II programmer. He used to come to Kansas Fest and he had a 12 inch blonde mohawk, and he was about Two hundred and eighty pounds, and you know, maybe not quite six feet tall, but with the twelve-inch mohawk, he was a six-foot-eight, <laughs> and uh, you couldn't miss him. But we'd stayed friends with Jay as well, so we we worked out a deal with Jay to do IO silver for iOS and and Android, and we got a artist in England named Steve Young. We just found him by looking at images on the internet and finding some cartoon graphics we liked, and got a hold of him and got him to do a new professor for us. Uh, as the main character and some bugs and stuff, and uh, we started the project, and here we are, ready to ready to release it on the 30th anniversary. Um, it'll probably it'll be a pre-Christmas release. We got some weird delays. Jay uh, unfortunately lost both his well, he lost his father, he lost his mother, and he lost his brother-in-law all during the process of working on Isle Silver. So he had a lot of unexpected delays there. Wow. Yeah, it's it was amazing. It's it and it just was weird. It was like every time he said, You know, next week I've I've got some time set aside, I should be able to get a lot of work done on Isle Silver and then the next day we'd get an email saying, Well, you know, so and so just died, I won't be able to work on it. I've got a funeral to go to or plan or whatever. Wow. So it was just really strange how often he got derailed that way. But um, he hung in there. He's a great guy. I hadn't seen him for 10 years and until September. We went up to Alaska and visited him in Alaska. So it was good to see Jay again. He did most of the work. I did some of the programming, just a little bit. He, he did the vast majority of it. And Ross has worked on some of the documentation. We've all been involved in the design and, and input and coming up with new ideas and how to enhance the game. And, and we're pretty much ready to go.
0: That's pretty exciting. I'll definitely be downloading that one.
2: Yeah, it'll be available on uh, iOS. It's got high resolution graphics for iPad and, you know, uh, Retina displays. So it looks great on a big screen TV. You know, you plug it in and because it's a, uh, the way it works is um, you just swipe for the four directions that you're moving. And when you run into a chip, you just swipe again that same direction. It'll push the chip. And so you don't have to be looking at the screen. So your iPhone actually makes a great controller and okay. you can plug it in. Yeah, you plug it in directly or Apple TV and you can play it on a, you know, 50 inch HD television and the graphics look great. And you just hold your phone and swipe on it as a controller and it, it makes for a great game that way.
0: Okay. So, uh, so it doesn't matter where you swipe. Right. Okay. You don't have
2: to. Yeah, it's just four directions. It's just left, right, up, down. It matters where you tap on some of the menus, but if you're doing a menu thing, you don't have to be, you know, you're not really playing the game at that point anyway. Sure. But wh- while you're doing active gameplay and, and trying to avoid bugs and move around, you yeah, you can just use your iPhone as a controller and, and play on a big screen, which is pretty cool.
0: So is there a retro mode with the original artwork?
2: Oh, you bet. <laughs> um, awesome. I did the work on that. I cheated a little bit, I suppose, but it was really the easiest way to do it is, uh, I used Sweet 16, ran iOsilver Silver on my iMac and captured screens and then touched up the graphics and, uh, handed them over to Jay. And, and so the way it'll work is the game will be free to, uh, play about, uh, first 10 levels maybe. Um, I'd have to check and make sure I should have memorized it, but, we added a bunch of tutorial and training levels because the game was pretty hard to just jump into and we felt that nowadays people are not quite as devoted and refined as they were thirty years ago where they'd tackle a tough one. So we made some easy levels to get people interested in getting early success, positive feedback and then and that's using the modern graphics. And then if you want to purchase a uh, add on for, I don't know, I think it's gonna be three ninety nine or something in the Apple store. Um, then you get the retro graphics, which have all the the bitmap look, just like the Apple II uh, graphics. I mean, that's they come straight from there. And then you also get some additional features. We have a we had we added some new things. So uh, for example, we added a magnet, which uh, when you use the magnet and you push a chip, it'll attract all the other chips of the same type, and and so it makes it easy to to build that integrated circuit or calculator or whatever. And we added. Another one that's called glue, where if you're familiar with IO silver, when you, it wrapped around. And so if you pushed a chip and there was nothing to block it, there wasn't another chip. It would wrap all the way around and squash the professor and right. end the game. Yeah. So with the glue, you can make a chip stop instead of wrapping. So you want it to stop somewhere. You drop a, a dab of glue down next to another chip. And then when it hits it, it'll skid to a stop and, and you can combine them there. Okay. And then my favorite add-on is the Waz kick. The Woz kick, well, what was Waz famous for? He liked reducing the number of chips, right? right? I mean, that was kind of like his his calling card was the fewest number of chips. In fact, I uh, just read recently about him coming up with some ideas for reducing the Apple II chips on the, on the main circuit board. Like, I mean, like this year, he thought of a way to eliminate another chip. That's right, yeah. But so the Woz kick is about reducing chips. So w- when you activate the Woz kick, you walk up to a, a chip and you kick it and it, it blows up in a glorious fiery explosion.
0: <laughs> That's fantastic.
2: And, uh, yeah, a little shout out to Brian Weiser for creating the graphics for the professor's, uh, lab coat it gets set on fire <laughs> by the wise kick when it explodes. And so he did the animation for the, the smoking and flaming lab coat when, when he kicks that and his eyebrows and what have you. And let's see. I think, yeah, I think those are the special ones. And then, um, uh, we've got high scores for both there's the cheater level which is if you use these new add-ons or there's the pristine purist one where you just are uh, building it like you did in the old school way and so we'll keep track of both uh, high scores and uh, you'll be able to share a screen on facebook if you do a great job or you know whatever and we'll have the high scores posted we'll have a website that'll indicate that kind of stuff so yeah there's a few new add-ons that make it kind of fun and and add some new things to it and some new graphics but we also have the ability to go just play that original game and
0: so is there a firm release date set for that or when can people download it
2: we're shooting for in two weeks but just to play it safe i'm saying it'll be pre-christmas i don't know when this episode is going on the air Jay is going to school, and he's got some exams, (laughs) and so he's going to be working on, he's already made arrangements with his wife to allow him to work on it for Christmas Day. (laughs) I mean, I'm sorry, not Christmas Day, Thanksgiving Day. So Thanksgiving Day, he's got permission to work on Isle Silver, and he's hoping to, to have everything done there. I mean, it's the game's basically done, but it's kind of like wrapping up the last things with the Apple Store and and the activations because we have the in-app purchases and there's just some tricky little things you've got to do to nail down all of that stuff. Right. So he's he's hoping uh, the the ideal situation would be that he gets it all done on on Thanksgiving Day and and then uh, that following week it would it would get released. But definitely uh, we're we're shooting for end of November, beginning of December.
1: Well, I suppose as long as you get it uh, get it out by uh, before the end of the year, so you, you make that thirtieth anniversary thing.
2: That's what I told them. We got to hit the thirtieth anniversary, and, and that shouldn't be any problem because actually this the current version, which is which I got you know I don't know a month ago. Um, I haven't had any lockups or crashes. Everything's working fine. I mean it's definitely a polished product ready to go. It's just taking care of those technical details with the Apple Store and everything. So it's it's really just busy work, you know. The actual coding is all great. So I think we're uh, I think we're ready to go on that.
0: Sounds great. So did you guys have updates planned as well? Or is there going to be new content or new features added along the uh, later on? Or
2: you know, we uh, we're we're kind of playing that by ear. I, I think a lot of that depends on the reaction to the game, the response to the game. So I mean, if it sells. If it sells well enough for us to break even, which, uh, you know, who knows if that'll happen. But uh, like I said before, we did this for fun. And as diehard Apple II guys, we wanted to see a great old game, you know, come back to life. And so we could all play it. But um, if it actually makes enough money to to justify doing some more stuff, we've talked about, you know, some additional graphical things and, and some, you know, 2.0 kinds of uh, features, some new things we could add. So we'll we'll consider that. And then the other thing we uh we we, we are considering is perhaps some kind of related spin off games using some of the same gameplay as far as you know, wrapping on a screen and move you know, objects moving things around but taking a little different approach. We've got a couple of ideas. So we'll uh, we'll see how this does and then uh, based on that we'll decide if there's gonna be a new version or a new game or, you know, a whole stable of games or whatever. But uh, we think people will enjoy it, and we think that newcomers will find it a lot easier to break into because of those easier levels. Um, just diving right into the original one, man, it was it was tough. It was a tough game.
0: Yeah, the those a lot of those classic games, the learning curve on them can be pretty steep for sure.
2: Nowadays, you know, there's so many options out there. I don't think people have the same amount of patience. You know, back then. You pay 30 bucks for a game, you're going to spend the time to learn it. But now if it's free or a buck, you know, it's like, eh, move on to the next one. It was too hard.
0: Yeah, it's very true. You have about five seconds to capture people's attention and and that's, otherwise you lose them forever. It's uh, it's mobile is a tough space for that reason.
2: Exactly. And that was a great reason that, uh, I mean, a great example of that was my son, you know, he's 20 college student it was great to run it by him because you know his his response was like well this is too hard most people are gonna are gonna give up on it and you know he's a engineering major he doesn't mind challenges but he also knows that you know quick games are the rage you know there's some pretty simple games that made a lot of money so he actually uh, really encouraged us to do some simple ones to let people ease into it and and uh, we did, and I think I came up, I, I did a bunch of level design for that. I created a bunch of the early levels. I think Jay had a couple of them, and then I did the rest of them. And uh, it's a nice little sequence where each time you solve a level, you know, just a couple of chips and a few more and a few more, and so it kind of keeps getting more complex as you go, but at least you're led into it instead of just diving right in and having a super complex screen to tackle.
0: That sounds great, even for me who played the original. Just because uh, going looking back on it now, it uh, yeah, I'd forgotten how difficult it was. So I will, yeah. uh, I'll welcome the, uh, the the lower learning curve myself.
2: Yeah, easing into it, you know, and you get that feedback. And of course, you know, another big thing is the old graphics. You know, you merge them and they'd kind of bulge a bit, and it's like okay, they're merged. But now with the modern graphics, you know, you got the spectacular kind of flashes and explosions, and you know, there's a lot more eye candy you know, on the, on the new version of it. And Jay's got background music and stuff. So you can, you can have a little tune playing and lots of special effects and cool things. So I think people will like both, you know, I, I enjoy the new version for all the eye candy and I enjoy the old version just for the nostalgia.
0: It's uh, the last question I have to kind of ra- bring it back around. Uh, probably everybody out there has a a favorite uh, Beagle Brothers product. You know, my personal favorite is, uh, was platinum paint on the 2GS. That was uh, uh, I was really into uh, game development at the time, and Platinum Paint was just fantastic for developing art assets. So, uh, what uh, do you have a favorite?
2: Well, before I answer that, let me. Do you want a little Platinum Paint story? Absolutely. That was written by my good friend Matt Reimer. He was not happy with any of the editors out there, so he talked me into writing an editor so that he could have more fun writing Platinum Paint. Mm-hmm. So I created, it was called Rose, R-O-S-E, Rose 16 actually, because it was a 2GS only editor drop-in replacement for APW and also Orca M, which was the same basic platform from Mike Westerfield. And so I wrote that, I made it so you could, you know, had an editor that was a lot like Apple Works and it was really fast and all that and made a few hundred bucks selling it as shareware. Whenever Matt wanted a new feature, he'd just call me up and say, hey, make it do this. <laughs> so he had his own custom editor to, to write Platinum Paint. And then we did mini-paint through Gem Software as kind of a preliminary version. And then he expanded that on. But the, the crazy story is that Matt and I became friends when I was subbing at a high school. And he was, a, uh, he was there as a student. He saw us doing computer stuff. We hit it off. We became friends. I got him a job at Beagle when he was 16. And then I went and visited him one day at his house, dropped off some software, and ran into his grandfather, and we started talking. And half an hour later, we realized that his grandfather and my grandfather had been buddies in Canada in the 1930s, 50 years <laughs> earlier. right. <laughs> wow. I mean, not just coworkers; like they ate lunch together, they hung out together, and 50, 50 years later, Matt and I were friends in San Diego, 2,000 miles away.
0: That's fantastic.
2: That was Twilight Zone country there, man. That was like... <laughs> Wow. It was, it was just so bizarre. Anyway, we, we stayed friends and, and Matt's, uh, Matt's still doing computer stuff and, and all that. So that was platinum paint. So my favorite though, man, you know, I guess in, uh, fairness, I have to exclude my own stuff because that would be, that would be biased. So of other people's stuff from Beagle, you know, in terms of coolness, I think maybe decode by Alan Bird was such a cool debugging aid for applesoft programs and it, it just took things to another level i would rate it really highly in terms of what i actually used it was gple the global program line editor which was later replaced by allen's program writer which is a full screen editor but that was a software touch product i've got a quick little story on gple also that was written by neil Kansen and when burt showed me that he said you know he's the only guy that i've never talked to i've published software for people i haven't met like brad Wilhelmson, because he's off in japan of course a year or so later brad did come to the states and we got to meet him but he said neil Conson's the only one i've published something for that we've never even met you know he just mailed us some stuff and did some mail thing well it turned out if you read the history of uh of the mac uh andy Hertzfeld has a blog about the history of the Mac. Well, I was reading that one day and it turns out that Neil Conson is working at Microsoft and he would be in charge of the Mac division, you know, because Microsoft was preparing products for the Mac. Like, um, I forget the name of it, but they did like an Excel clone, you know, they did a sp- MultiPlan. Was that it? Was that the one from Microsoft? They did a spreadsheet anyway. Yeah, that's right. And, And they did a couple of they did a word processor, a version of Word, what have you. Well, anyway, Neil was the point man talking to Apple on on doing that. Well, he kept asking Andy questions like, "Well, how do you do regions? Like, how is this graphics clipping occurring with the layering and stuff?" And Andy's like, "You don't need to know that. Like, that's got nothing to do with you know we're we're doing that. You're just creating the product." And and yet he's asking these technical questions. Well, a couple years later, when Windows came out, it turns out. Neil Kansan was in charge of of a graphical interface on Windows.
3: (laughs)
0: Uh
2: (laughs) So he was pumping Andy Hertzfeld for how to do all this graphic stuff. So if anyone says Microsoft didn't copy the Mac, well, (laughs) not only did they copy it, they got a lot of their information directly from Apple. But he had been a little child genius and as a teenager had written the uh, line editor that was the most popular one on the Apple II for a while for AppleSoft mm-hmm. editing and wrote it while he was, I think, still in high school.
0: Wow. So uh, you piqued my interest there with uh, uh, Decode. How does that work? What, what does that do for you when you're programming AppleSoft?
2: Uh, well, what Decode does is there's a, there's a couple of hooks down on page zero, which is, is where um, AppleSoft kind of processes their stuff. So Alan hooked in, and every... Every key press and every token that gets processed gets run through decode, and so it essentially uh, allows you to do some tricks with expanding stuff or finding errors and finding mistakes in your program like a syntax error if I recall correctly, it's been a lot of years. But instead of just printing syntax error at the bottom, it would actually show you the line of code, you know, that kind of stuff. Oh, so it was okay. a lot more inter, intera- interactive. Mm-hmm. So it was just, and it, it, it could do cool stuff with variables like batch, you know, rename. And, you know, there's little utilities for doing some of these things, but this kind of built it all into an integrated development tool that just was really smart about helping find errors and helping you rename programs and, you know, taking out remarks or cleaning renumbering and kind of pulling all those tools together in one place and then also doing some things that no one else had ever done before. Cool. Okay. You know, in terms of a technical thing, you know, like as somebody who was getting into programming and who was getting to know quite a bit of the internals because I'd studied those free magazines I got from the dumpster, it was one of the most technologically advanced you know, pro, probably the most technologically advanced programming tool out there for the Apple was was decode. And the, and that's why I liked it so much because Alan was just doing some stuff no one else had ever done before.
0: Yeah, that's that's actually really impressive at the, for the time, especially. I mean, I've been working on some tools for Apple soft development myself and I've been, you know, hacking up uh, the parser and so on. It's tricky now even. And we have just, you know, stacks and stacks of documentation, you know, every aspect of it is so well documented now. But I mean, at the time, a lot of that wouldn't have been available. So probably would have been a lot more reverse engineering and disassembling of the ROM and so on.
2: There's no doubt Bert was the marketing genius, uh, you know, and founder of, of Beagle Brothers and the comedian and, you know, what have you. But he, he was obviously the driving force behind all the humor and everything. But in terms of the technological, I mean, there was a lot of good programmers at Beagle, but nobody that ever worked at Beagle would would come up with any name other than Alan as being the premier genius there. I mean, he was just, he just kind of was you know, he's the father of time out and, and he, you know, he created all this other stuff and he was very collaborative, you know, I mean, he gave us ideas, we gave him ideas and he was open to suggestions, but pure original creative stuff. Alan was the genius of Beagle. And I don't think anyone would argue with that.
0: How about you, Mike? Do you have a favorite Beagle Brothers program?
1: My inclination is to say AppleWorks that that's not necessarily didn't start I and mean, it didn't start at Beagle. Obviously, you could say timeout. <laughs> well, and yeah, my as far as as pure Beagle utilities that I got the most use out of, definitely the timeout stuff because in '84 I was doing my homework in AppleWorks, and I remember the first time actually that I wrote it was some creative writing paper or something like that, and and I spent you know all all the time formatting it and. I didn't have a spell checker at the time, so I went through and, you know, I printed this thing out on the, the Epson FX80, you know, the dot uh, matrix, yes. and I take it into work and my teacher's like, what is this? Rewrite it by hand. And I went, no. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, I, I, AppleWorks made my, uh, made my school life infinitely easier or at least at least more efficient as far as uh doing homework and writing you know because like like most people i could type quite a bit faster than i could write anything by hand so um and then the the timeout the timeout additions just took a took a really cool a really cool thing and just made it beyond excellent for me so definitely uh definitely those two products
0: and I, le- I just love the idea of a uh, quote-unquote patch that basically just replaces the contents of the disk with a new application. <laughs> <laughs> what? It's just a yeah, patch? Yeah, well, what?
2: We, we, were determined to, we were determined to get it done. The other thing we did is when we did AppleWorks uh, 3, uh, which was under Claris, I was in charge of what was called the host, which was kind of like the command center where all the calls went through because you're... Memory management and all those things, they all went through a standard spot so you could patch them, but also so that as the program changed, you didn't have to change your references because they went through the standard jump table and then went off to, you know, wherever. And that way, when the program lengths shifted and stuff, you know, you, know, you didn't have to change any of your calls because they're all going through standard hooks. It changed dramatically. (laughs) We put in a lot of stuff for timeout, you know, built it into Apple works so that next time when we installed timeout for 3.0, I think the install program was probably half as long because we had so much stuff built in that just like, okay, we're putting timeout hooks in here. We're putting this in here. And it really, it really made it nice in terms of ideally designing Apple works for timeout, you know, instead of designing timeout for Apple works 3.0, <laughs> we designed Apple works for timeout
0: built in all the extensibility ahead of time.
2: Exactly. And then it was just like, okay, here's the, here's the slot. Now, now we just plug in and drop in our new tool, you know, whatever it is and new hooks. And we didn't have to worry about if there's a, if there's a 3.1, is something going to move and we got to come up with a new version? And we didn't have to, because now we're going through these standard hooks and, Apple works could change, but timeout would still be able to call this one spot and know that this is where you're always going to get a keystroke or what have you. Yeah, it was, it was great. But I just wanted one other thing related to that is, did either one of you ever dabble with Merlin Pro and do any 6502?
0: Yep, for sure. Yeah.
2: Well, Merlin Pro is the reason why there's a Macroworks and Ultra Macros and all that because Merlin Pro had macros. I don't know if you remember that, but if you held down the solid Apple key, you know you could do these little macros, and they're pretty tiny. It's basically just keys. But I just thought that's a cool concept. You could press one key and do multiple keys. And so Merlin is what inspired uh, inspired me to do MacroWorks. I thought, well, it'd be really cool if I could do that in AppleWorks. Alan had been messing around with AppleWorks, and one day at our Friday lunch, he showed us where he says all the AppleWorks keys come from this place. And he showed us where, and I went home and thought, hey, the keys all come from there. I wanted to do macros. Hmm. And by the end of that night, I had it so you could press a key, uh, option N, and it would type my name. <laughs> like, man, the first time I saw multiple letters appear on the Apple Work screen with pressing one key, it was like, I am on to something.
0: <laughs> yeah, light went on.
2: <laughs> that was my livelihood for the next couple of years. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, lots of fun memories and I, I really appreciate you guys doing that. I do want to say one thing is Mark Munns, uh, was a high school or co- early college kid who, who submitted some, uh, patches that I ended up publishing through Gem Software. And then he came down and got hired and worked at Beagle Brothers and been a friend ever since and did, of course, the, uh, the Mac conversion with Deja 2 and, you know, still involved in some of the community stuff. But today is his birthday. So although, uh, If you air this, it won't be the same day as his birthday. I I do want to say uh, happy birthday to Mark Munns because I've probably stayed in closer contact with him, although I'm still in touch with a lot of the guys. I've probably had more contact with Mark over the years than anyone else. So He was a great contributor to the whole uh, Beagle community.
0: Happy birthday indeed.
1: All right, Randy. Well, uh, thanks for taking some time to talk with us and reminisce and also for introducing IO Silver. I know I can't wait to get my hands on a copy.
2: Yeah, My pleasure, and I hope everyone enjoys it. And, of course, I hope all the diehards that are hardcore enough to listen to Open Apple will <laughs> uh, want to get the retro version because the retro version is what it's all about. We've got to have do some reminiscing about the good old days, even if we enjoy the new features.
0: Yep, that's the one I'm playing for sure.
2: <laughs> we've got a website at iosilver.net it's got information about the product it's got some videos with people that played a role in it early on some of the history and that so if you want to find out when we're actually released and get more information about the product just go to iolsilver.net.
1: ok thanks Randy
2: thank you both so much have a great day
1: bye
0: bye Get what's new and exciting in retro computing with Two News.
1: All right. Well, again, thank you, Randy. That uh, was a great, uh, great appearance, and nice to hear about some of the uh, the good times at, at Beagle Brothers and Gem Software and beyond. And uh, of course, I'm looking forward to getting my hands on a copy of IO Silver uh, as soon as that comes out.
0: Yeah, it's gonna it's um, gonna look great on your shiny six iPhone six plus. Oh, I
1: hope so. Maybe it won't crack the screen. Yeah. (laughs) So, uh, Randy couldn't stick around with us to do news this time, so it's just going to be Quinn and I, um, and I guess we'll just dive right into it.
0: Yeah, let's do that. Uh, Why don't you start, Mike? I think this first item is yours.
1: USA Network, which um, I don't... I can't remember. Are they... Is USA Network the one that's doing uh, Halt and Catch Fire, or is that AMC? That would be AMC. Okay, so maybe this is USA's competitive product. They've given a pilot pickup to a show called Mr. Robot, which normally I don't really pay attention to, you know, pilot season and stuff like that, but um, it's from the creators of true detective, which generally means, I mean, that's kind of a hot creative team right now. So giving it a pilot pickup generally means it's probably going to go to series, And I was reading the description of this on Variety.com, and um, it looks interesting, but they use the word hacker a whole lot, which is sort of concerning to me Mm because… That generally means something like it's going to end up like that, that god-awful scorpion show. Oh, God,
0: so. I can't even watch the commercials for that thing. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. So terrible. My wife loves it, of course, but I, I can't, just can't deal with it. But, uh, I am curious to see how that goes because I, I will say that, uh, I was a fan of the first ser- season of true detective. So maybe it won't be that bad. Maybe, maybe this is just USA ad copy promoting the show, but anyway, it's called Mr. Robot. And, uh, if it does go to series, which I think it will, uh, um, I think they're saying it'll be uh, on air probably for summer 2015.
0: Okay, dear Hollywood, you keep using that word "hacker." I do not think it means what you think it means. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's uh become a buzzword lately. It
0: really has. So uh okay, well cool. So uh moving on, we've got some some cool hardware news coming out of the uh fine folks at Reactive Micro. Yeah, um, Yeah. This Henry is and Anthony. Yeah, this is super exciting. Uh this is something that I mean the community community has been wanting for for forever, and uh, uh, I wouldn't have thought necessarily it would ever happen just because of the difficulty of it. But uh, so, yeah, Reactive Micro has announced that they are cloning the Transwarp card. And,
1: now, uh, is this the is this the Transwarp like for the uh, the eight bit or is this the GS? I believe you know?
0: this is the GS, and um, yeah, possibly. I'll have to double check my uh, my secret sources here, but uh, possibly the two E <laughs> as well. But I'm fairly sure they're at least starting with the Transwarp GS yeah, so they uh, and it's not just as far from vaporware. they've even posted, uh, I believe on the Apple II Enthusiasts Facebook group, they posted uh, some images of their Gerber's, which uh, if, you're, wow. uh, if you're not familiar with um, the process of making electronics, the Gerber file is sort of the uh, description file of the PCB layout that uh, is used by the fabrication house that's going to make the circuit boards. So uh, it describes where all the traces go and where all the chips are going to be and so on
1: so yeah this is this is great news, especially because these things tend to be so expensive on eBay yes, and if you 're going to overclock them, which generally I recommend you do i mean um, you can i think they they default at seven megahertz, but really, if you can get up to ten or so um that's really great uh, but part of the problem is you never know how far you can push these things i'm not sure if it's just a vagary of how they were produced back then but some won't go faster than you know eight or nine and some will go up to 15 i've heard a couple of even been up to 18 megahertz so if they have a new product that maybe i don't know if it would be more stable or something but you could get more reliable like this is going to go at least this fast that'd be awesome too
0: yeah, because Reactive Micro, these are, if I'm correct, these are also the same folks that are kind of the experts in overclocking transwarps, right? So they kind of they kind of know what, which quirks it is that makes some be able to go faster. So I'm sure that they'll kind of incorporate that into their clone of it.
1: Reactive Micro is basically Henry Corbis, um, and he works with another guy, Anthony Martino, and Anthony runs Ultimate Apple II. Uh, they're kind of, they do, you know, they each have their own thing and then they do this partnership and they're very good at cloning existing Apple II hardware. Um, you know, for example, they had the Mockingboard 1A for a while, which I guess they've also announced will be available again. So these guys do know what they're doing when it comes to cloning now. As I recall, the problem with the transwarp GS has always been the, the gals or the pals or something like that mm-hmm. that they've never been able to. That's the piece that's been missing so far. So maybe they've been able to crack that problem.
0: Right. Yeah. And for anyone again who isn't familiar with electronics, those are sort of the programmable logic portions uh, of the of the circuit, and that's kind of kind of the only parts that you can't just sort of buy off the shelf. Um, those are the the custom custom silicon. So yeah, they may have. I'm not sure how they solved that problem. They may have um, reverse engineered the existing uh, gals or pals on the chip, or they may have. You you know, come up with a, a work-alike in an FPGA or something. I'm not sure the details, but uh, suffice to say, this is it's a complex board uh, and reverse engineering, it could not have been easy. So uh, this, uh, that's some really fine work that they're doing there.
1: I know it's been sort of um, a holy grail in the Apple II community for, you know, for a long time. People were trying to get a hold of the original Uh, applied engineering folks to see if any of the, the plans or the code still existed. None of that stuff has ever surfaced, which I think has been part of the reason nobody's really been able to make a lot of headway into cloning this thing. So like you said when maybe they've they've finally found somebody or they figured out a way around that where they don't need that stuff anymore. But whatever it is, hopefully that means that, that you'll be able to buy a more affordable Transwarp GS. You won't be paying 800 or or $1,000 for the ones that go on eBay right now, which is just insane.
0: It really is. Yeah, plus it's going to be a new card. So, you know, you spend $1,000 for one on eBay and who knows if it totally works exactly right or, you know, if it's been abused or overheated or what. So, yep. uh, so yeah, this is fantastic. So... Yeah, and kind of related to this, uh, the other thing that I'm personally quite excited about is uh, Reactive Micro is uh, has announced they're going to be producing a scalable oscillator. Uh, so this is mm. uh, this is a neat little device that uh, has kind of a standard standard footprint of a of a crystal oscillator like you would use to you know overclock your Transwarp, uh or your uh, Apple IIc Plus, for example. And what's cool about it is that it's uh, adjustable from 28 to 80 megahertz. So uh, that's fantastic. It's ex- that's just a thing you need for overclocking projects. Because you don't you don't know up front exactly how fast you're going to be able to push your particular instance of the hardware. Uh they're all a little different. So um this is kind of a cool thing that you can just kind of buy it and stick it in there and just uh, play with it and see see how fast you can get it to go. So and this is honestly going to be great for hobby projects as well. It's nice to be able to just buy one thing instead of having to stock, you know, a, a big box full of oscillators for any, <laughs> you know, any speed that you might need. So this is a neat thing. I'm quite excited about that.
1: Yeah, definitely. It's reactive micro kind of shut down a few years back because Henry wanted to do some other things, and it's really neat to see them kind of back in business now. Because in addition to to the trans warp and the, the adjustable oscillator, they've announced that uh, there's you know they got I guess they're going to clone the applied engineering phaser card mm-hmm. um, that's in the pipeline. I'm really excited about that. Uh, they're working on an, an eight meg CV tech. Ram card clone for the 2GS. They've got Ram, the Ramworks is being cloned with, uh, as well as a Ram factor with buffered out expansion options. Um, and Ultimate Apple II, um, which is again Anthony's business. He's been working with David Schmink on the Apple II Pi card. So there's going to be more of those available. Um, as well, if you're if you're interested in t- attaching your Raspberry Pi to directly to your Apple II, so lots of great stuff coming from them, and I uh, can't wait to throw my money at them.
0: <laughs> Likewise, yeah, one of the RAM cards they posted photos of it, and it's got a uh, uh, it's got the RAM uh, the ROM expansion uh, bus on it, so mm, you can yeah. uh, you can uh, burn your own ROM chips and stick them on there for like instant uh, booting software, uh, like uh, was liking that. Yeah, so if there's uh, something like imagine putting say uh, the ADD Pro client on there, you know, burn it onto an EEPROM and stick it on your ROM expansion. Oh, wow. And uh, you'd be able to boot instantly into that, for example. So there's, yeah, lots of cool uh, possibilities there. Um, very, very handy. Uh,
1: more Apple hardware this time, Apple One. I don't know. We, we talk about this every time it happens, and I guess we kind of need to because it is vintage Apple news, but it's sort of, uh, I, I at least I'm experiencing a little bit of uh, Apple one auction fatigue, <laughs> burnout, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, I'm there with you. So, uh, anyway, Newsweek uh, uh, ran the story that the there was an Apple one that went up for auction earlier um, this fall. It sold for something like $900,000. I'm sure based on the strength of that sale, another one was immediately announced that will be auctioned here in the next couple of weeks, early December. Uh, and they're expecting that one to get more than a million dollars.
0: Yeah, at some point this uh, Apple One gravy train will run its course, but uh for the moment, yeah, it's uh, we're going to keep hearing larger and larger numbers, I'm sure for them.
1: And we'll mention every one of them even if we don't talk too much <laughs> about it.
0: You see what we do for our listeners. Where else would you find about find out about the latest Apple One auction news, except for everywhere, because it's on <laughs> Newsweek and Kotaku and Boing Boing and everywhere else?
1: Well, if you lived in Australia, you could ask Woz himself. See what I did there with that uh, segue?
0: That was smooth. It's almost like mm. you uh, make podcasts.
1: So, um, Steve Wozniak, of course, this has been all over the news as well, uh, has taken a job as a temporary or I guess part-time professor uh, at uh, an Australian university and I think this is mainly done so that he can establish his residency requirements because he wants to immigrate to Australia. He's been talking about that for a long time and Part of the problem has been that his, he's got this heavy travel schedule. He flies all over the world to make these appearances and even shows up at Kansas Fest sometimes. And uh, that's sort of kept him from being able to live there. I think you have to live there like nine months out of the year or something for five or six years in a row, uh, which he just hasn't been able to do. And I, I guess this is sort of I don't know if this is an end around or if this is a way to allow him to buy a place and be there for that amount of time. But uh, that's where he will be.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I wonder if he's going to continue his travel schedule because I would think uh, living in Australia might make that harder, I guess, unless he's traveling to Asia a lot or whatever, but uh, North America would certainly get less accessible for him.
1: I think Waz is kind of the the world jet-setter type. I mean, I see him in places like Singapore and Brazil as often as I see him in Silicon Valley or, you know, in Kansas City. So uh, I think – I don't think he minds all that much. I know he's – you know, time catches up to us all and he's getting up there in age. And I I know that he's not – you know, travel begins to get harder and harder as you get older. Mm -hmm. And um, at some point, he's going to want to stop doing that. And I think when he does, he's going to want to – He's said he wants to end up in Australia. and, And who could blame him, really?
0: For sure, yeah. Yep, I have never met an Australian I didn't like, so. I don't know that many, though, to be fair, so I'm sure there are some jerks. So uh, watch out, Oz, here comes Waz.
1: Ah, I see what you did there. You made it funny.
0: Yeah, I actually stole it from your show notes.
1: Uh, okay, so if you're a um, vintage computing enthusiast and you spend any time on YouTube, you've probably stumbled across... Terry Tezza Stewart's awesome YouTube videos yeah. that he does where he kind of shows he'll, – he'll take like a TRS-80 or or is an Apple II Plus and sort of tear it down and show you the ins and outs. And it's a really well done uh, prof- almost professional level video series. Uh, but he recently posted this – it's a news clip I guess from 1980 about – it's a news report about – computers in society and and it's kind of amusing to watch one for the 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 hairstyles obviously and two for just sort of the the sort of uh, uh, naivete about computers and using them and it's it's kind of almost cute and funny to watch so
0: yeah this uh this video is it's a fun watch and yeah i also just absolutely adore terry's channel it's fantastic um and yeah this video it is it's very yeah it's very period and uh there's a lot of Ooh and awing at the cr- crazy <laughs> predictions that someday everyone will own a computer, and how you know silly that sounds, and you know the skeptical reporter and all that. So yeah, it's uh, it's a lot of fun.
1: And the great thing about uh, YouTube is they have sort of a like a recommendation bar off to the right of the video. So if you – when you click on this, you'll get links to a bunch more reports from the period about computers. And, you know, you can – it's definitely a K-hole you can spend a lot of hours getting lost in.
0: Yeah, for sure. And if this is the video I'm thinking of, there's a section of it with a uh – uh, a metaphor that I that I really love. This guy is describing how, uh, because of course the big problem that w- we had back then was trying to explain to people what computers were going to be good for. Why would everyone want one in their house? You know, it's any with any kind of paradigm shift uh, like this. You know, everybody's living a certain way already, and it seems to be working. So why do we need this new thing in our lives that is just going to kind of do everything that we're already doing just slightly differently? It's kind of a hard sell. So. Uh, he uh, likens it to, you know, the internal combustion engine where, you know, in the early part of the 20th century, you would have had the same hard sell of, well, what is this thing good for? It's like, well, we already have, we have horses and we have steam engines for pumping out mines and we have all these things already. Why, you know, what is this new thing going to do for us? So, and, you know, fast forward a hundred years and it's it makes up the fabric of everything we do now. So it's uh it's a, it's a great, a great analogy, I think.
1: Well, and speaking of that, it's sort of interesting. Here's another slick segue for you all out there. Uh, in the latest, um, well, I don't know if it's are issues anymore, but on popularmechanics.com, there's an article that Boaz wrote where he talks about how he considers the Internet to be the innovation that gave birth to the modern world, and he kind of goes into, like, the history of... How the transistor changed everything and that this is even even greater than that as far as, you know, how it affects our, our daily lives. So that's an interesting read that uh, I, I recommend.
0: For sure. So, uh, yeah, this next item I have to talk about because I love it. This thing, this is my favorite news item that's come across our, our <laughs> desk in a while. So uh, there's uh, uh, an article and video has come out from, uh, uh, so Jordan Mechner was digging through some some old files or whatever, and he found uh, the original video that they recorded of his little brother doing the Prince of Persia moves that he ah. then used to rotoscope the animations.
1: Totally awesome. And
0: this thing w- just blew my mind. It's, they're in a parking lot somewhere on a little stretch of grass, and there's a little uh, concrete uh, sidewalk block that, they, that they're using to set up the, uh, the 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 timing of the jumps, and it's his little brother doing all the moves, and it's you know the stumble steps and the accelerations and the landings and all of this stuff, and it is eerie. You watch this kid do these moves, and it looks exactly like the prince in <laughs> Prince of Persia. It's it's fantastic.
1: Now, did he also do? Was he also the rotoscope model for? Uh, karateka karateka I don't, I
0: don't know i would assume not because uh yeah i would assume they would have required someone with some martial arts training to do that uh i certainly can't kick over my own head so i don't think <laughs> the average person can do some of that stuff but uh, uh yeah that i don't know uh it's possible that uh jordan may have just used you know footage from movies or something to do that
1: Well, I I do know that the same rotoscoping technique was used for both games. It was more refined for Prince of Persia because that came later, so...
0: Yeah, that's my thought, too. I, I wonder if, because it is so much more visibly refined in Prince of Persia, I suspect, and I have no confirmation of this, but I suspect that... Uh, he may have sort of taken it a little more seriously this time around because uh, you know um, uh, this yeah. video he's specifically obviously set up this camera angle and they've set up an environment to do it in where they can repeat the moves you know there's a takeoff point for his foot on the jumps and so on so they've you know he's really kind of uh, formalized uh, the process of capturing this footage so uh, I don't know if he did all that for for uh, caretaker as well but um, yeah it's <laughs> this video is really fun it is eerie watching watching this uh, live human being do all those moves. Uh. And remembering
1: uh, playing them on the screen, yeah, I assume, is part of the experience. Yeah,
0: for sure, yeah. So, uh, yeah, so moving along to uh, other things that are my favorite things. Uh, I am uh, I am the world's biggest William Gibson fan uh, for anyone. No, you're not, because I am. Nah. yeah Do you have a Johnny Mnemonic <laughs> pinball machine in your house? No? Oh, uh-huh. You beat me! Check and mate. And I also have a signed copy of Neuromancer, although it's not a first edition, so...
1: You might have. I oh, I got you beat there because uh, I do have a first
0: edition signed. So oh, I'm, damn it! All right, well.
1: Well, he's still alive, so you could potentially beat me on that.
0: Yeah, I have to actually get a first edition, which I don't have. But uh, mm-hmm, okay. yeah. So yeah. You can't have mine. Yeah. <laughs> so together, Mike and I are the biggest world, <laughs> biggest William Gibson fan uh, in the world. So uh, yeah, he's got a he's got a new book uh, coming out, and uh, it's probably out by the time this recording will go out. So, kind of uh, in response to that, uh, someone has done uh, one of those Let's Play videos, which you may have seen for other games, where basically someone just uh records video of them playing uh, a particular game usually i think for the first time um so it's sort of a a way to see what uh, what a game might be like before you play it and uh there's some sort of commentary as they play so someone has done this for the Apple 2GS version of Neuromancer which was sort of a graphical uh adventure game uh kind of along the lines of like King's Quest that same similar interface you're walking between static screens and interacting with characters and objects
1: I think it's called a point-and-click adventure game.
0: I suppose, yeah. When I think of those, I think a lot about things like Myst, where there's no kind of avatar on screen. So this, you mm-hmm. know, you have an animated character who's walking around in the environment. So, um... Think, think Leisure Suit Larry, but sci-fi. Yeah, exactly. So, and yeah, it's it's actually a really great game. There was a version for the 2E as well that uh, used uh, double high-rise graphics really nicely. And... Uh, the uh, 2GS version of it is just fantastic. It's it came out for a few platforms, but the 2GS version is just the definitely the canonical, you know, version of the game. And uh it's it's a great game. I played it uh, all the way through back uh, back at the time, and uh, it was really fun to see it again. So uh this person who is playing it uh, does a decent job of it, you know, sometimes these let's play videos they have no idea what they're doing, and so it's just mm-hmm. sort of a really bad representation of how good the game might be. Uh so but yeah, this person uh gives it a fair shake.
1: Neuromancer was the game that made me want a 2GS like really badly Mm. because I I used to – there was an egghead software store down the street from me that I used to hang out at all the time after school. And and when they set up the 2GS, that was one of the demo games. And, man, I just sat and salivated over that.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful game. And uh, it was one – I think it was probably the first – Real double high res game I played on the 2e, the 2e version of it, which is also really quite nice. And it, it just, yeah, at the time it just melted my brain. I mean, because I had no idea the 2e was capable of that. You know, I didn't. The double high res graphics mode got so was so underused, and uh, no doubt because of its difficulty to program for. But uh, towards the end, there a couple of the games started to come out that used it, and Neuromancer was one that, uh, yeah, that was really great. So, but yeah, if I had to play one or the other, the 2gs version is definitely the one to play.
1: It blew my mind because it this I, it really introduced me to the concept that you could take a book and make a good game out of it you know i was at the time i think neuromancer was or the, the book was two years maybe three years old so, and i was a huge fan of it and just to, to to see this world sort of come to life on on the screen and with the full color graphics and sound just it blew me away
0: yeah yeah for sure and, and even today i mean if you wanted to go out and Find you know I really like the cyberpunk uh, literary genre. I want to play a game in that in that uh, that genre. You'd be hard pressed to find one. I mean, it was a very underserved kind of niche uh, in in video games. So you uh, you can't do much better than than this old neuromancer.
1: Unfortunately, I think it's uh, I think the disc images have been cracked, so you can play it in your favorite emulator if you. Buy a copy online, make, uh, you know, uh, like from eBay or something, make sure it has the code wheel Mm -hmm. uh, because those discs, um, I think, will probably still be protected. And there's kind of one of those soft copy protection, I guess, you know, where it's on paper instead of on disc. You can't play the game without that wheel. The, The images online that have been cracked, I think, have been set so that. The thing that it asks you for from the code wheel is the same every time, so that's not a problem. But if you, if you do buy it, buy the box copy, make sure it has that wheel or you may not be able to play it.
0: For sure, yeah, it's got some sneaky things in it. Uh, this was, you know, a fairly late game, so they were getting more and more clever with that kind of uh, paper-based copy protection. So there, some things where you, there's some times when you have to enter account numbers and into banking systems and so on. Where if you didn't know you were supposed to enter a specific number, then it just doesn't work, and you don't ever really know why. And so, <laughs> yeah, so you want the cracked one for sure.
1: Yep back to Hollywood for a minute. Quinn, did you see the Steve jobs movie left from what last year? I think it was.
0: I don't know before? which, I don't even know which Steve jobs movies we're talking about anymore. It seems like every week there's some <laughs> other one.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think there are two major competing ones, not including like the funny or die one, which made no sense. Or the one came out last year or the year before starred Ashton Kutcher as, as, as Steve jobs. And it got kind of mixed reviews. Uh, this is the one that that was was, was not involved in. And in fact, he kind of ended up in a social media shootout with Ashton over that movie. Right. Um, but there's another one being written by Hollywood wunderkind uh, Aaron Sorkin, which is still in production. And for a while there, it seemed like it had kind of gone into turnaround hell where, you know, we keep hearing about this and it's never going to come out. But it looks like there's been some movement again at least on the casting front do you want to tell us about that?
0: Yeah so interesting news so if I'm correct is this the one that's actually based on the book? Uh, the official biography that, the really thick one? Uh, yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah so uh, yes Seth Rogen is apparently uh, lined up to play Waz which uh, is kind of an interesting choice uh, I can kind of see it and kind of not I mean Seth Rogan's, you know known for his uh, goofy sort of uh, juvenile comedy movies but uh He kind of has a certain wasness to him, so I can kind of see it. I think it's not 100% confirmed. I think this might be uh, the category of a strong rumor. In negotiations. Yeah, something like that. So this was apparently supposed to be the Christian Bale version of the Jobs movie, but now they're saying Christian Bale has uh, no longer uh, agreed to do that.
1: Christian Bale, I guess, read the... Had not read the Jobs biography and had not read this really read too much of the script because Sorkin's still writing it, and when he when he finally got around to it, I, I think he the and I don't have it in front of me, but I read somewhere that his opinion was that he would not be able to do Jobs the justice that the character deserved, and so he stepped away from it, which is sort of an interesting take when you normally when you hear about kind of the 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 big hollywood star types we we tend to associate big egos and oh i can play anything Mm -hmm. you know it turns out terrible so to hear somebody who's not only an incredible actor but has been in a lot of really great movies over the years sort of take that stance where my ego is not going to direct um, my decisions is is refreshing i don't know if it's true or not i mean he might just be making that up but
0: yeah i have a feeling maybe he that it might just be an excuse because he didn't want to do it for some other reasons, but because uh, yeah, he he is a fantastic actor. I mean, uh, you know, the Machinist was just an incredible film, and uh, so I.
1: Oh, one of my favorites. So. Yeah,
0: so I can't imagine anyone who could play that couldn't uh, do a decent job of of playing jobs, but uh,
1: when he's not screaming at lighting directors. <laughs> yeah, that's right.
0: <laughs> yeah, so uh, who knows? Maybe he just decided he didn't uh, didn't want to be that guy or something.
1: I was talking to I think it was Carrington actually about the the casting choice for for Seth Rogen and he said you know it's sort of sad that they've decided to go with and he this is his words this is your words Carrington to go with the, uh, the fat Woz character hmm. um because Seth Rogen tends to be kind of a chubby guy mm-hmm. and and if but if you look back those those early early pictures of of Woz at Apple he was not that guy he was actually I mean he wasn't skinny but he was certainly not you know, he's gained a little weight over the years as we all tend to do. And it's, it looks like the, the actor that they're picking to play was might have to, his physicality and and size might have something to do with that. And I think that that's kind of like, Karen to point out, it's kind of a sad reason to choose that. On the other hand, Rogan did lose a bunch of weight for that terrible Green Hornet movie, so maybe <laughs> he'll do it for this as well.
0: Yeah, I, it does feel a, the, the choice feels a bit like they're portraying current Waz rather than 80s was, uh, for not just for the physicality, but for uh, just the, the personality as well. You know, it, it seems like they may have chosen uh, Seth just because he's such a goofball. But uh, And, you know, Waz right. is, is known to be a goofball as well, but he was also, you know, a fantastic engineer and a really hardworking, you know, thoughtful guy, and it was kind of that Waz that made the Apple II, you know, that I think we, the, the goofball Waz is sort of the more recent one that I feel like we know, um, and not to say he wasn't also that back back then, but, uh, you know, I, I feel like uh, I would like that early sort of work that he did to be more of the emphasis uh, put into the character rather than... Uh, you know, the, the, the guy that we see now.
1: Maybe it's changed, but I, I know originally the script was supposed to be Steve Jobs at three different keynote addresses. It was going to be him introducing the first scene, is going to be basically three long scenes. Uh, the first was him sort of backstage and then introducing the Macintosh. And then the next one was going to be his introduction, uh, his reintroduction to Apple, his return in 1997. And then and then again in, I think, I don't know if it was the iPod or the iPhone, whatever, there was that the third sort of seminal keynote that he gave. And so I don't know how you would work was into that necessarily. So maybe they've expanded it or maybe, maybe Aaron has decided to take a more traditional narrative. I don't know.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, if they've chosen, if that's the time period of jobs life that they've chosen uh, a, I think that's unfortunate because, you know, completely ignores the first decade of Apple's existence. Uh, but uh but b that does make a little more sense because by then you know Waz was more of i guess of a minor character uh in the uh sort of play of uh that is apple but uh yeah that's disappointing i mean i'm i guess i'm not a huge fan of all of these jobs movies just because of that i feel like they just pretend that this whole section of apple's ex- uh, history doesn't exist because uh, i guess they want to uh, focus on this later portion of jobs when he was uh more of a big deal but uh yeah, I think it uh, trivializes uh, a lot of really brilliant work that the company deserves to be recognized for.
1: It's, it's sort of sad to see a little bit, you know. Like Apple has always maintained this stand: we don't look back, we don't look to the past. And when the 30th birthday of the Apple II came and went, there was nothing from Apple Computer. Mm-hmm. They didn't. There was no mention of it, uh, and yet. In you know earlier this year, they threw a huge party for the 30th anniversary of Macintosh. <laughs> yeah. So obviously, we do look back. We just only look back on certain things. So. Yeah,
0: yeah, and it's reflected in the culture. It's hard to find people these days that even know that Apple made computers before the Macintosh. <laughs> so
1: yeah, I've told that story a few times. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny though. There was one brief little uh, hint uh, that Apple acknowledges their existence uh, in their most recent Macintosh ads. This has been talked about in other places, but. Uh, it, they're running this new series of ads for the, um, I think it's for the i, iP- uh, for the MacBook Air. Um, what they call it, the mm-hmm. most loved computer, and it's a, a, <laughs> a gallery of really fun uh, stickers that people put on the backs of their MacBooks. There's actually some fun ones in there that I might try to buy because I hadn't seen them before. But, uh, but yes, if you if you look, uh, they flip through really fast all the different stickers that people put on their MacBooks. But if you look closely in there, there is uh, the stripy Apple one that people put oh, on there, yeah. and I think if I'm not mistaken, there's the pixelated stripy Apple one that some people do. Uh, and uh, they finish, uh, you know, they do their usual white screen with a slogan on it and their black Apple logo in the middle. And right at the very end, there's a little flash where they turn the black logo back into the stripy one. Oh, cool. And, and yeah, it's, it's neat. It's really cool. So watch for that closely next time.
1: Well, there's a uh, there's actually an article and it may be I don't know if it's Colt or Mac it may be Mac Rumors I don't have it in front of me we'll have a link in the show notes where uh, one of their authors sat down and dissected that commercial and said here's every sticker that appears in in the commercial mm-hmm. and it's a screenshot and a description of each one so that's that's pretty cool uh, I like to see that I know that you know the the official story is that well we had to retire the rainbow apple because it was just getting too expensive to print six colors on everything and the the badges and the plastic badges and stuff were expensive but I think that was kind of more Jobs sort of like getting rid of the past when he moved when he came back to Apple so it it is sort of neat to to see that flash up every now and then
0: Yeah yeah I think the change in the logo was pretty clearly a stylistic choice I mean that was you know that was the trend at the time to go to go minimalist and simplistic and monochromatic so
1: and speaking of logo changes, um, another smooth transition here. I'd like to take just a moment here to thank Peter Neubauer for the the work that he's done on our updating our logo and the the banner on our web page. If you've been by there, you've seen that we've sort of switched over to the to the the gray and white that your phones and opa, you know, the pixelated openapple.net. Uh, text. And, and of course, right in the middle of that's a nice little uh, rainbow apple. So thank you very much, Peter. You are awesome, sir. Yeah,
0: Peter is the man for, for doing that for us. It uh, yeah, it suddenly occurred to us that we weren't uh, off, honoring the Stripey logo in our own logo. So uh, that was an oversight that had to be corrected. Peter stepped up to do that for us. So uh, let's uh, let's talk VisiCalc, Mike.
1: So last month... We talked about Lotus One Two Three, and, and that had turned thirty or something like that. And we, part of the discussion was about how how quickly Lotus killed off VisiCalc. And now, granted, VisiCorp, Personal Software, whatever they were calling themselves, had a lot of legal problems. They, the company had split into two pieces, and then those two pieces sort of went at it over, you know. The, Uh, one company was producing the software and the other was made to sell the software and the company making it was delivering the product late and the company receiving it was saying, this is buggy and and terrible and they ended up suing each other. So uh, that sort of, I think distracted them from the mission of making good software and, and then add to, to Lotus one, two, three, which became the IBM PCs killer app and pretty much wiped out VisiCalc, the, the sales of the program in in less than a year. Mm -hmm. But if um, – and, and, okay, so a little little side venture here, I guess. Uh, I recently managed to – I paid like 20 bucks on eBay or something like that for – it's a packet of official press releases from both VisiCalc and personal software from back in the day. And it, there's a little bit of – you can see if you read through them, there's a little bit of jabbing and poking from the companies, our products, and this and that, because – Personal software, I guess, once they got sued by VisiCorp, said, well, you know what? We're going to make this anyway, and you can't do anything about it. It's going to be better than what you sell, and blah, 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 and neener, neener. Uh, so that's sort of fun to read through those, and I will be scanning and posting those shortly. But um, the the point of all this is that VisiCalc turned 35 this month, or the corpse of it did anyway. <laughs> and um, as I was reading about that, I stumbled across this thing that uh, our, our friend Data Jerk, a.k.a. Egan Ford, did. He actually did this a little while ago, but he ran... Advanced VisiCalc on an Apple III uh, to calculate pi. That's kind of one of the things he likes to do. Egan works at a a large company, and he does um, high-performance computing and testing, so he likes to run these benchmarks on these old computers. And one of the things he does is how quickly can these things... Um, calculate pi, because it's a really good indicator of how well it does the the higher math that way. And um, he has a a screenshot and actually a video of this Apple III uh, running advanced VisiCalc as it calculates um, pi. It's kind of cool if you're sort of into seeing computers do their math things.
0: Yeah, that is cool. And in fact, uh, it was fun to watch for me, even just because to show how little I knew about uh, the Apple III, I didn't realize there was a VisiCalc for it. (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, and, and uh, so so he ran this on Advanced VisiCalc, and we, I guess we should say that Advanced VisiCalc for the Apple III is not really – it's not a entirely new product. They, they'd originally released VisiCalc III, which was sort of a clone of the Apple II version, and then this Advanced thing was a, a set of add-ons that you could install to your existing VisiCalc setup that gave it – Gave it access to all of the advanced features of the Apple III that the two didn't have. It's not. It's not like this new product that stands alone. So.
0: Okay. Cool. Yeah. I guess it's it's easy to psychoanalyze in hindsight, but uh, VisiCalc strikes me as a, a classic case of a company that was sort of a victim of their own success. They uh, they had this one great product and it did so astonishingly well for them that uh, it seems like they kind of got stuck on it and they weren't able to to pivot when the market shifted. You know, business software kind of went in a st- Kind of advanced past what VisiCalc was, and uh, they weren't able to sort of see where the market was headed and kind of adjust their uh, their product lineup uh, to meet that new need. So, uh, yeah, that was where Lotus One Two Three was uh, a disruptor, as they say.
1: Well, and interestingly, so so actually, so VisiCorp kind of—I don't know if it was sort of an awareness. I, I kind of doubted just from reading their stuff that that VisiCalc wasn't going to last forever, but they came up with this product called. I think you pronounce it vision. It's Visi on like visit calc sort of a thing. But if you put the two words together, it's vision, which I think is sort of a play on words because what this is, is a graphic user interface for the IBM PC. And in fact, there was a demo of it at, at Comdex Las Vegas in, I don't know, 80, 81, something like that. And Bill Gates was there and uh, he actually attributes that demo to a large part of him deciding that, Microsoft needed to get into the to the GUI design thing, um, but unfortunately, they were uh, Visicorp was not able to execute. It was late, the product was slow, and they sold it in modules. So, uh, the the base product was like four hundred bucks and then each module was like three or four hundred dollars and I think somebody did the math and added it up and if you bought the entire vision suite it cost seventy five hundred dollars which is like three quarters of the price of a brand new Apple Lisa. Wow at the time. So they just really fumbled the ball on that one and it and You know, they were late, so they were going to release in, like, December, January, 83, 84, which would have been right before Macintosh. And Windows 1.0 got out before them. And by the time it came around, it just – it was kind of like, what is this product? Oh, it's a thing from the past. Looks so cute. (laughs) And uh, they ended up having to sell that off to, I think, Control Data Corp bought that product and went, oh, my God, what do we buy? (laughs) It's just a – uh, I guess kind of a, a confluence of of bad decisions and and not being able to see the bigger picture for the
0: company. Yeah, yeah, and it's easy to forget that a lot of uh, this the reasons for success or failure have nothing to do with the product themselves. You know, this Vizion might have been a great product, uh, but. Uh, you know, success in the business space is a lot about getting those, those deals signed behind the scenes, you know, for distribution with big companies and the companies that serve big companies and the, you know, the software deployers that, that sell suites of software and hardware to companies. So, you know, that's, that was really, you know, where Microsoft's success came from, of course, was, you know, getting Getting their foot in the door with, you know, being the OEM operating system for for different uh, clone makers and so on. So, you know, something like that might have been where uh, where VisiCorp kind of fell down a little bit. It uh, wasn't enough to make a great spreadsheet and put it on the shelf. You know, you had to you had to get in behind the scenes with the uh, with the companies that were buying in large quantities. So,
1: kind of a sad story. It's been a long time now, and I think most of the people who were involved were. Pretty much, you know, have moved on, but we'll have some links in the show notes. To I, I know there are definitely some some uh, PDFs. Um, I think there's a PDF out there, and and some web pages of people who were there who've written their personal histories. And it's and I guess maybe there's a little still a little animosity because you see, like you know, I forget um, somebody on one side wrote this is what happened, and somebody on the other side, well, wrote, well, that's what he said happened. Here's what we saw. So it's yeah, it's it's kind of a, a weird. Thing to see a collapse of a, a company like that.
0: <laughs> yeah, there's probably some some old bitterness and resentment there, and of course the uh, the victors write the history books. So uh, a lot of the story that we know now might uh, might not be exactly what happened. But uh, that's true. So uh, yeah, so moving on to other kinds of software. Um, yet another terrible segue, courtesy of Quinn and Mike. <laughs> Woo! So wizardry one trademark <laughs> That's right. Uh, wizardry one uh, has been reverse engineered, uh, disassembled, and posted in that order.
1: Yep, you can find all this on uh Compsis Apple two. We'll have the link in the show notes to the Google Group's version of that. Kinda cool to to see that somebody would sit down and, and take apart such a, a defining a genre defining game like that and and um, not only post just like, post. well, here's the code, but kind of talk through, well, here's how I disassembled it, and these are all the things I learned. It's um, not only a, a neat little piece of history, but if you're looking to learn uh, sort of how commercial game software gets gets made and put together and what goes into it, uh, it's all well commented and, and discussed, and there's a neat long thread about it. Definitely worth checking out.
0: Yeah, this is a fun read. Uh, this is the kind of thing that I love about the modern Apple II community is that this kind of stuff surfaces now either – Uh, Because the original source code is found or because someone uh, with just a passion for the original game, you know, does this kind of thing going in and, and actually reverse engineering it and documenting it. The, uh, it's, yeah, it's a nice window into the game production process because you know much like they are now game companies back then were very secretive and none of this stuff you know was well documented or, or shared or anything so uh, it's only kind of now that we're getting to see some of this kind of stuff and uh, it's a great great way to learn some you know some programming if you want to read someone else's code uh production game code is always very educational to read because it's very different than code that you'll find in books or uh, or demos or uh, samples you know on on stack overflow or whatever uh production game code is all about getting something shipped. So you know, you you cut you cut a lot of corners and you do a lot of dirty things uh, to get a product out the door. And uh, all that computer science you learned goes out the window when it's three o'clock in the morning, and uh, you know the manufacturer is ex- expecting a gold master in the morning. So, <laughs> uh, so yeah, it's it's definitely a, a really fun read. And uh, yeah, I, I found myself uh, wishing it was uh, Ultima, and uh, and I would have en- yeah, enjoyed reading it more. Me I think. But,
1: uh, well, maybe. Maybe eventually uh, Lord British will dig that up and start posting all that thing, all that information. Uh, I, I do think it's neat that because it's been 30 years, you know, you're not you're not trying to deal with like, I'm taking apart Call of Duty and here comes Treyarch, <laughs> you know. Do you have to take that down? It's been 30 years. The companies aren't around anymore and the people that did the coding either don't care or are very supportive of this effort and say, hey, here's what you got wrong and here's a bunch of other stuff. That's always cool to see when that kind of – I don't know that that happened in this particular case, but it that does seem to be kind of you know, like when we talked to, to Gary Little about his books, you know. Oh yeah, post them. Post them. Go ahead. Yeah. You know, big fan of that sort of stuff. So that's it's great that that because the we have kind of that that three decade buffer now. Um, yeah, technically, I guess the stuff still is copyrighted, but we're at a point where no one cares, no one's making money, and I'm not. I'm not using this to justify piracy or anything, but. It's it's nice because this is a neat educational tool for people learning seeking to learn how the a- Apple II really worked and and we don't have to worry about well this chunk of code has to be taken out because it exposes how they co- they copy protected it and we can't comment this and you know so uh, yeah neat to see
0: yeah for sure you know we we're kind of in this don't ask don't tell kind of zone now with a lot of this stuff where yeah okay technically if we if you went and asked you know whoever ended up buying the corpse of Certec hey can we you know, publish this. So they would, of course, say no, because the lawyer's job is to say no. But, uh, mm-hmm. you know, if you just go ahead and do it, nobody seems to care too much. So, right. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, Wizardry's had a funny history. I mean, it does actually still exist in some form, I believe. Uh, you know, long after it was dead in the U.S., uh, some uh, company in Asia actually bought the IP and oh. made a whole series of games in Japan. And uh, so there's like 30 Wizardry games in Japan that Whoa, North cool. Americans have never heard of uh, on like Play- PlayStation <laughs> and all kinds of strange platforms it's funny to see the, the logo on almost modern software so I don't know if that's still going on but uh, Wizardry had a life in, uh, in Japan long after it died in the US and of course it wasn't really the same game anymore it was just you know a name and a local no, logo sure. by then but uh, it was uh, much more of a beloved franchise uh, than here I think so speaking of none of that uh, <laughs> Mike if I, uh, if I wanted to get some sort of poster that had uh, a bunch of apples on it what, what would you recommend?
1: Why Quinn you could check out PopChart Labs I think Uh, This is the third time they've done this. They've created a poster. It's um, sort of a, I don't know if you'd call it an infographic necessarily, but it's uh, maybe like a family tree of every single Apple, major Apple product. The problem is, okay, this is version 3.0, and the reason that there's a version 3.0 is they keep saying has every Apple product, and then a bunch of people will say, oh, except for these and these and these. And um, I forget. I think the first one was missing some Apple 3 stuff and the Apple 1, and the second one was missing more stuff. And So they've tried for a a third time, and and I I haven't taken a close look yet, so I don't know if they've got everything, but the stuff that's been mentioned as having been missing from the first two posters is definitely here in 3.0. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and I think that if I remember correctly, the comment thread on this article already has some some stuff that they missed. Uh, oh some, no. <laughs> some version of the Emate or the Fog version of the app of the ImageWriter Two or this. something. Uh, yeah, there's uh, they are fun posters though. Uh, yeah, former client of mine has one of these hanging in his office, and uh, the first version of it, I believe, and it's uh, it's actually gives you quite an appreciation for the Apple II line uh, and the, the longevity that it has. You know, it dwarfs whole categories of Macintoshes. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, it yeah, it's they're fun, these posters. I like them.
1: Yeah, neat to have. And, and, you know, if you do decide to go and buy every single one of them, I guess maybe eventually you could, you know, take some scissors and tape and cut them all up and make one poster that does have everything.
0: <laughs> you could, although then you maybe have too much time on your hands. All right. Uh, so, Mike, tell me about uh, Ellen Lynn's.
1: So Ellen Lenz is uh, known as – well, I don't know if she's known, but um, she was Apple's first user evangelist. And the reason I know about this is because I stumbled across an article at thecommunitymanager.com. We'll have the link in the show notes, of course. And that was basically – they had stumbled across her post on Facebook talking about her history with Apple and asked if they could reprint it on their webpage so that people wouldn't have to go to Facebook to to find it. And she said yes. And – Uh, It's a really neat history of sort of a a part of uh, Apple Computer's past that that doesn't always get talked about, and that's these these people that were hired to, in her case, go out and sort of convince the Apple II user groups that one they weren't abandoning Apple II, and two that they should switch to Macintosh. Uh, And Apple, uh, I'm sorry, and Ellen was was the first of of these people to be hired to do this, and she managed the teams of. Of people that they would go out to these user groups and show up at meetings and kind of evangelize, uh, and it's a really neat history. And it's ah again, this is a piece of Apple history that I would never heard before. You know, recently over on Drop Three Inches, the podcast, the Apple Three podcast that I do with with Paul um, plug, Hangstrom. Plug, plug. <laughs> plug plug plug. We uh posted an interview that I did I managed to do. i feel privileged to have been able to do uh with Colette Asklin, who was the designer, she was the PCB designer for the Apple III, and she was heavily involved with its engineering. And you know, if you'd searched on Colette's name before that interview, there was really nothing about what she did for the three, and only a little bit about what she did for the Macintosh. And and this this is again, I, I not to not to get too into gender issues, well, I guess we can if we need to. I have to wonder, you know, why why I hadn't heard of another woman's story uh, at Apple who obviously played a big part of their history.
0: Yeah, there there always does seem to be a, a little bit of a thread of marginalization running through uh, the history of of technology uh, like this. So uh, yeah, that's it's a great a uh, great read that thing.
1: Yeah, so she's got a got a neat story a neat story there and a bunch of. Uh, cool pictures that she took from from back in the day that she hung on to so definitely uh, worth a read
0: yeah we will certainly link to that so we have the unfortunate duty to report on uh, the loss of some some of our luminaries Uh, so we'll start with call appl uh, user group director mike pfeiffer i'm hoping I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly. He was a programmer and editor of Call APPL and uh, the Digital Civilization, uh, as well as uh, Apple president. And he passed away at his home in Manitoba, so kind of a, an alma mater of mine. And he was uh, <laughs> driving force behind the rejuvenation of Apple in the early 2000s, and uh, will be sorely missed.
1: Yeah, I'm sorry to hear about that. I, I was not aware of... Him as a person or or the job that he did behind the scenes at Call Apple, um, partially because growing up, at least in my area, when I would go to B. Dalton's or or whatever bookstore I was in, there was never... Call Apple, for whatever reason, wasn't one of the magazines that was on the shelf, the shelves there, and so it wasn't one that, like, Nibble or Computers, well, that I ended up subscribing to later. I think I kind of, I would run across their ads occasionally, but it was never one that, that I had coming in, so I was not familiar with their history, really, or the people behind them. So to see, you know, Bill Martin still runs Call Apple, um, and to see that that post is is still pretty sad
0: call apple's been uh, a great resource for me uh nowadays honestly uh you know i was being in a kind of remote area of canada uh when i when uh, i was originally using apple twos uh it wasn't uh kind of something that was available to me then but uh, now it's just a great archive of of information and software and books and so on so uh so yeah sad news indeed there and uh Unfortunately, continuing on that trend, uh, we've lost Bob Bishop, who, uh, yeah, this was another real pioneer in uh, in our, our beloved machine. He was uh, probably uh, best known for his uh, integer basic program called Apple Vision, and this is going all the way back to DOS 3.2, which uh, some of us, myself included, uh, never even used. Uh, I came in on what? DOS. Yeah, I came in on uh, DOS 3.3. <laughs> and uh get out <laughs> yeah my uh, my 2 plus came with a set of uh, uh the 16 sector stickers the the little apple mm-hmm. logo with the 16 in it because the thought might be you might still have some 13 sector disks and you might need to identify you might need to identify them but yeah i never actually used dust 3.2 it was just a cute anachronism for me at the time so uh so apple vision uh, is fun to to look at now you know we'll link to a video of that in the show notes it's uh, kind of a simple little uh Graphical demo. Uh, you might even call it the first scene style demo for the Apple II, and uh, it's of course you know very basic by uh, later standards. But what's great about it is that you have to remember that he had basically no documentation at all. So you know he essentially figured out how to use the high-res graphics screen and shape tables, and he wrote his own text renderer that he interfaced into you know AppleSoft print statements. Uh, so it's it's there's a lot of neat stuff in this seemingly simple demo. And, uh, you know, when you consider that it was done with zero documentation, just entirely by reverse engineering the the ROM and the hardware, it's uh, quite an accomplishment. So, and of course, he went on to do many other things, but uh, Apple Vision might be what people might know him for.
1: This one kind of hurts me a little bit more than Mike, no offense to Mike, of course, but I, Bob Bishop. So he, he started making games for the Apple II, the first Apple. I think he had... Um, serial number 13 or something really crazy little like that and I know he had an Apple 1 and he, eventually they he would send his tapes into Apple and they would, you know, like on Fridays all the programmers would be playing his latest game and he, he got hired there to to write software and he started the R&D lab at Apple uh, with Waz and he was there, he did some work on the Apple 3 and um, the other, in addition to the Apple Vision, he did something called Apple Talker which was uh, it was a speech recognition program, and there was another one he did that was a speech generation program. So he did, in addition to the to the sort of pioneering Apple graphics work that he did, he also did a lot with the Apple Sound, uh, which is is actually pretty impressive when you consider it's basically just a speaker that ticks back and forth to generate its sounds. Uh, so a really great guy. I got to I had the privilege of being able to interview him for Juice GS back in two thousand nine. Um, more on that in just a minute. And then sort of through that, I was able to kind of help facilitate him being this keynote speaker at Kansas Fest in 2010. So I got to spend some time with him face to face and, and we developed, a, I wouldn't call it a real close friendship, but there was certainly a, an acquaintance. We exchanged a bunch of emails over the years and they kind of stopped coming earlier this year. And now I know why, and it really makes me sad. I would like to say that when i interviewed bob we did it uh, over skype and i was able to record that and thanks to ken gagné uh, of juice gs the, the interview appeared in juice gs so they own the copyrights but ken was generous enough to uh, to allow us to share some of those clips and uh, here's a few of those right now
3: i saw an ad in a magazine back around 1975 76 and it was an ad for the apple 1 computer That they were selling back then. And they only made about 100 of them or so. And uh, I got interested in it. So I went up to Palo Alto and I knocked on Steve Jobs' door. He wasn't home at the time, but his mother, stepmother, or stepfather were there. And they expected him back any minute. So they had me come in and sit down. About five minutes later, Steve came walking up and Yeah, we got introduced. He took me out to the garage, his garage in the back, and showed me the Apple One. And he was getting it to work, but he had a keyboard and a monitor, and he would type some stuff in, but he couldn't quite remember how he was supposed to do stuff, because Woz hadn't quite showed him everything. But I saw enough to be interested, because I saw a lot of potential. But I just didn't feel like going through all that trouble to make a computer. I wanted one that was already put together, and the Apple... Apple One was the first one that came close to being put together. Now, you wouldn't call it put together by today's standards. All it was was really what you would call a motherboard today. You still had to get a power supply and a case and a keyboard, a monitor, and all the other stuff. But it was still more put together than the Altair's and the M-size of those days. So uh, I met with. Uh, I went up to Apple. I met with Mike Markula and Steve Wozniak. And this is when they were still in like a two two office building. I mean, they weren't they weren't even on their main facility yet. So I went up there and I explained my problem to them. And so Steve and Mike went off into the back room, and they came out a few minutes later and said, "We'll tell you what. We'll make you a deal. Uh, you give us back the Apple One and I have a certain amount of money, and we'll give you a brand new Apple II. Well, that was a great deal for me, yeah. Because I mean, heck, I mean. Apple One was obsolete, and the Apple II had all these neat capabilities. So of course I went and went for that, and it's a good thing I did because if I hadn't, I probably wouldn't have gotten an Apple II, and I'd still be still be working out in the workaday world. <laughs> um, I remember I I started playing around with the graphics. Uh, there were no high-res graphics utilities or anything when I started. I, I got serial number 13, so there were, I didn't have too many predecessors competing with me. Uh-huh. And one of the things I started playing with was high-res graphics, because there was absolutely zilch about high-res graphics. And so I experimented and played with it and found out what pixels came on when you stored what hexadecimal numbers and what locations. And I was able to put together a map of the graphics screen, which is kind of bizarre. It wasn't linear. It was really screwed up, but... I somehow figured it all out, and I started working on a game. And by the time the sun came up the next day, I'd made the very first game, which was called Rocket Pilot. Well, that was the whole fun. I mean, you know, if you can't, if there's no challenge, then why why bother? (laughs) You know, doing something, trying to find something that can't be done and then doing it gives me more of a thrill than just, you know, doing something that anybody can do. So, Bob, thanks for everything, and um, you
1: will be missed both personally and professionally.
0: Definitely, and uh, I'll also throw in the link to the show notes. I'll throw in a link to uh, the Apple II history page. Uh, Dr. Stephen Weirich's, uh site has a great page on Bob Bishop, kind of a rundown of his career and uh, everything associated with that, so we'll link to that as well. So, yeah, big, big loss to the community there. So, uh, yeah, let's moving on to a little uh, a little happier news. Uh, talk to us about the Something Venture documentary, Mike.
1: So I'm a huge fan of documentaries just in general. Me too. You know, uh, um, as long as they're well done and the, as long as there's the – the one thing that kills me is the, the reenactments. You know, I get that – I get the companies don 't necessarily have clips of things that may have happened at the time, and you need filler while the while the the voiceover artist is is doing his narration but um, fortunately if if you have a Netflix subscription, there are a ton of really great documentaries out there, none of them have anything to do with reenactments or, or you know, the kind of jiggly camera thing that points at, at hands being shaken in, in the dark as a backdoor deal or something <laughs> like that. You know, come on, guys. Uh, I did, I found something, and this was just, I randomly stumbled across this. It's called Something Ventured, and it's a documentary about early Silicon Valley startups. Um, and it talks, they, they interview Arthur Rock and Mike Markola and Don Valentine and all these these um, other venture capitalists from, from back in, back in the early, early days of the uh, Silicon Valley. They talk about uh, the founding of Fairchild and Intel and Cisco. And one of them is Apple. And so it's interesting to hear kind of Arthur Rock talk about, well, yeah, they, somebody t- told me that uh, this, these two guys were looking for, for uh venture capital and I, I met them and they they were dirty and they smelled bad and i didn't want to deal with them so i sent them over to don valentine and they switch over to don and don talks about yeah they were not really what i was interested in but you know how kind of how apple got to or how how the money got to apple through mike Markula and the founding of the company not from the the the, the genius tech creator or the genius business guy and jobs and was but through the venture capitalists who funded this thing and, and their impressions of those early days and there's a, a good portion of it spent on apple's founding so if you're if you're interested and just in general this is a it's a well-done documentary that i highly recommend
0: yeah it is it's a good watch uh, i'm a total documentary junkie myself as well and uh, that's the main main reason I have a subscription to Netflix is in fact because they have a deep uh, catalog of obscure weird documentaries and uh and yeah like you I can't stand the kind of history channel style dramatic reenactments of things that always turn out to Hard be copy. yeah they turn out to be about 97% fiction and they're just yeah they're just pointless so this kind of stuff I love so good find on that one Mike Thank you So uh why don't we move on to what I hope will be a new segment on Open Apple we're, uh, Woohoo!
1: new segments. New segment. Yay.
0: Hey, insert uh, music if we have any. I don't know if we have anything yet. But da, 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 da. <laughs> wow, that was seamless. <laughs> uh, so, I'm awesome. Yeah, we're uh, playing up with the format a little bit here on Open Apple, trying new things. And one of the things we're doing is uh, more user feedback. So we want to let you know that we do read all of your mail and all of your Facebook posts and all of your comments on our uh, blog. And uh, we want to return the favor and share some of your stories. So first one I've got here is from listener Herbert, who uh, has a great story for us about his uh, Gravis joystick. He uh, was uh, playing uh, a game that we'll talk about later, and uh, uh, the joystick broke, and he was in uh, Burnaby, British Columbia at the time, which is where the Gravis factory actually was. So he uh, took his joystick down there, and uh, they seemed crestfallen that it had failed, and so uh, (laughs) they took it. All the way into the back and started uh, repairing it. And they gave him, oh, wow. yeah, they gave him a tour of the factory, and uh, he got to see uh, all inside uh, scoop on Gravis. And by the time they were done the tour, his joystick was fixed, and he still has it to this day. And in fact, he's still using wow. it to play games now on his Apple 2 So, uh, I thought that was a fun story. I, yeah, I'm a bit of a, a Gravis fan myself. I had uh, a little sidebar on joysticks here, so of course, Apple joysticks. Um, Most people are familiar with the Apple style or the Kraft style or the CH Products style, which are all kind of the same. In fact, I believe the Mm -hmm. Apple ones were actually made by CH Products, and they have a a square opening that the joystick sits in, and uh, the joystick's sort of motion is dictated by the opening that it sits in, and the Apple one is square, which is nice for most games, because it allows you to hit those corners and those cardinal directions kind of consistently. So the Gravis joystick was different in that it had a, a circular opening, so it allowed you to carve a 360-degree arc really smoothly with the joystick. And nice. uh, as far as I know, there was one and exactly one game where that was a massive advantage, and that was Auto Duel. Uh, Auto Duel, when you're driving the cars around, especially in the arena battles, uh, oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, it was very important to be able to drive smooth arcs in your car while holding, you know, your side-mounted weapons pointed at the enemy. And so you had to be able to uh, to do that smoothly and preferably at top speed, which meant holding the joystick, you know, all the way to the outside of its motion. So it allowed you to, that, that round opening in the gravis allowed you to, uh, you know, carve smooth uh, driving arcs with the car. So it was fantastic for that. So uh, even after I got a... Uh, a Ch products joystick, which I vastly preferred for most things. I still busted out the Gravis for uh, for Auto Duel. Uh, so yeah, thanks for sharing that, uh, Herbert. So moving on, next we have email from listener Joshua. So Josh tells us that uh, his uh, his father was an elementary school teacher, and uh, he brought home the uh, infamous uh, Bell and Howell Vader uh, Two Plus one time. He was using it for a learning to program and so on. One of his other uh, hobbies is the uh, Traveler role-playing game, which I think Mike, you're familiar with. Is that right? Uh,
1: yes, and in fact, this is my favorite, most beloved tabletop RPG as a nerdy youth. I, I, yeah, I, I was of course d and D fan, and I played that, but I, I really like the sci-fi element to to Traveler and eventually Mega Traveler and games like that. So to to hear about to hear about this just kind of gets that that nerdy. Youth within me going.
0: Yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm vaguely familiar with Traveller. I think I played it a couple of times. Uh, I was also a paper uh, and pen RPG'er back uh, back in the day, and I uh, played a few different ones. But uh, so uh, so yeah. Joshua tells us that uh, he's he's been in touch with uh, Mark Miller, the creator of of the game Traveller. He uh, he was contacted by Mark, who uh, had come into or I guess discovered an old stash of Apple II floppies and. One of them had the manuscript for an unpublished Traveler adventure module from the, I guess, early 90s. So uh, he actually uh, sent that to Joshua, and he's uh, engaging in recovery of that uh, document.
1: Can't wait to see it. Um, like I said, a big fan. Traveler was sort of a, it, uh, the, the pen and paper version of Traveler, I think, served as the sort of prototype for uh, many um, a game computer game later on that it's a space based sort of trading and combat game you know so you you the idea is is flying from you start out flying from planet to planet and trading resources and getting in combat with space pirates and and then of course depending on the module that you're playing there's the storyline that you know it that it, it sort of helps the plot along and makes you want to keep coming back and playing every week and of course there are you know space empires and and tons and tons of games like that that came along later that all follow that that's that early structure
0: and uh, what's neat about uh this particular uh, story is that, uh, so they're DOS 3.3 disks, and the uh, files, so it sounds like he's not entirely sure yet, but it, uh, the files appear to be in, oh, I guess, okay, he is sure. Sorry, I'm reading the email as I go here. <laughs> uh, so the files turned out to be in uh, Magic Window format, which is a yeah. word processor that uh, yeah. some of us might know. I certainly uh, remember it. And magic Window was neat. It was uh, kind of a, a workaround to the problem of only having a 40-column text display on the early Apple IIs, and it had a, a smooth scrolling uh, horizontal uh, text window. So as you typed, it would smoothly scroll horizontally, so you got 80 kind of virtual columns of text on your... Like Magic. Yeah, like Magic. And uh, it's aptly named because on the surface, uh, that sounds kind of obvious. Well, okay, of course you're going to have, you know, a s- text that can scroll horizontally, but Uh, magic window was kind of mind-bogglingly smooth, actually. They really, really put their effort into making that horizontal scrolling smooth and pretty looking. And, uh, it really does a nice job of that. So it's worth, uh, loading that up just to see how smoothly they managed to get full pages of text to scroll, uh, in, uh, you know, on, at one megahertz. It's really, really nicely executed. So I think other than that, it wasn't necessarily the greatest word processor. It, uh, I never used it for much because of that uh it was certainly inferior to you know AppleWorks or uh, or others uh, my personal favorite was MultiScribe uh that was my word processor of choice on the 2E but uh it uh yeah for 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 the time and and so on it was a really neat kind of technical stunt that they did with the scrolling so that turned out to be the format that this Traveler module was in so Joshua uh found Magic Window on Asimov and he loaded it up and, and he got these disk images into into Virtual 2 and uh he managed to recover these documents and print them using Virtual 2's printer emulation into PDFs and, uh, he's posted them. So, <laughs> we'll, awesome. we will, uh, we'll definitely be, uh, linking them to those in the show notes if we can get permission to do so. So, uh, yeah, that's, I just, I love this story. It's got everything. It's, yeah. it's got, uh, role-playing games and it's got, uh, hidden caches of secret floppies that no one knows what's on them and <laughs> then it's got archaeology finding the old software to open them and then, you know, archiving them on modern formats and it's, yeah, it's a great story.
1: Combating brigands on the high seas. <laughs> that's
0: right. There's some wenches in there somewhere and,
1: and – Johnny Depp running around. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah.
0: Looking weird and like a him. A bunch and of scarves. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, thanks for sharing that uh, story, Joshua. Yeah,
1: definitely. I, I, I know what I'll be reading the rest of the afternoon as soon as we're done recording. Yeah. Here. <laughs> uh,
0: so, let's see. Moving along, we've got a uh, nice email from listener Mark who uh, – says uh, hi i'm a new listener to the show and just wanted to let you know that i think the show is great well thank you mark well, thank you i think that's mostly due to mike i'm just kind of no. Yeah. No, no, no oh no <laughs> i'm um, mike's the core of the show i'm just here to make commodore jokes so
1: don't believe a word of it <laughs> well the commodore jokes she's very good at but
0: and I, I'll take any opportunity I can to make cheap shots at wizardry as well, because Because <laughs> <Ultima, laughs> it's not ultimate. That's right. Because ultimation, ultima forever. All right. Uh, so let's see. Hey, did you ever join the Ultima Dragons? Mm, I don't think so, but it sounds like something I, I should.
1: A, yeah, check it out. It's um, we're gonna. Cook. Veer off the path a little bit here, I guess, but there's this—it's a basically an Ultima fan club called the Ultima Dragons, and I don't know if it's still active or not. But uh, you could go there and sign up and get your own Ultima dragon name and mm-hmm. sort of take part and hang out with people who are fans of of Ultima. It's a pretty cool community, and we'll have a link to that stuff in the show notes. Okay,
0: cool. Yeah. So uh, yeah, and I love that the uh, first part of his email address is uh, apple 2 Mark. So uh, awesome. Clearly uh, doing it right, as we say.
1: Your emails will always be read if your email address starts with Apple 2GS. Or <laughs> that's
0: right. And if you say something nice about us. And uh, nice to hear the new listener. And we always appreciate uh, new sure. new listeners. So, uh. mm-hmm. All right. So moving along to uh, listener Michael, uh, who shares his story of his first very first computer, which was the Apple 2C. Uh, also a great choice. If you can't get a GS, then get a 2C, as I like to say. Uh, that's not a thing I say. I just made that up. But I'm going to start saying that. Uh, so, Noted. <laughs> so feeling generous, uh, he gave unfortunately gave the two C away to a coworker in 1994, and uh, oh. it's for a good cause, I guess. The coworker had three children, so that's nice to hear. Uh, and uh, he's owned Max and so on, as we all have in the meantime. And uh, last month, he picked up a two E platinum on Craigslist and snapped it up, and is. Uh, enjoying the wonders of one megahertz CPUs and 140K floppy disks once again. That's 143K nice. for the penance in the audience, of, of which I am one. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, he tells us he's intrigued by, by K-Fest, as well he should be, and uh, nice to see that Apple II is still relevant, which, of course, we all know it is. He says, uh, Quinn and Mike, thanks to you both for bringing me up to speed and what I've missed in the past 20 years. Apple II forever. Amen.
1: Now, I, there was a discussion, maybe on Facebook, uh, about the, the platinum and why you would want to get that over, say, an older 2e, which led to a, another interesting discussion about the platinum. So I guess they're, with the platinums, they, in some of them, but not all, there's this, there's a resistor pack, uh, which was used to smooth out a signal. I don't know if it was a video signal or something else, but, and that improved Connectivity with certain scientific equipment that was sensitive to that sort of thing, but I guess it had some downsides and i don't have that in front of me um, at the moment but basically if you if you kind of cut that resistor pack out and wire around it it doesn't harm the two e and and improves the compatibility with this other stuff um, so unless you're running that weird scientific equipment plugged into the two e into the platinum you don't you don't need those at all
0: yeah that's right that was actually news to me. I read that same post and uh, we've not done our homework here, obviously, but I think <laughs> well, w- I
1: don't think we plan to
0: talk about <laughs> yeah. that. Was it Mike's throwing me curveballs here, folks? I'm doing what I can. Uh, wasn't it related to you on your yeah, wasn't it related to the game port uh, or something like the it may have been. Like the extra yeah. enunciators or something that hackers and hobbyists like to use didn't work or something because of this resistor pack or something I don't know there was something weird there
1: yeah we'll, we'll have links to all the specifics but basically if you're wondering why that's in there and if you can remove it yes you can yeah
0: great now you, had, now you had to go and say it's going to be in the show notes and now I have to go and figure out what this was and find it and link to it <sighs>
1: fine I'll do it
0: thanks a lot Mike no Oh, that's okay. You do do all the editing, so I think I can swing the googling. All right. Yeah, about that. No yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, Mike does all of the actual work on this show. So next time you see him at just why it sounds terrible. Oh, next time you see him at K Fest, give him a puppy or something, because uh, open apple or just a hug. Yeah, open apple would not exist without Mike's hard editing labors so moving along to uh, listener Mike Uh, brings up uh, a little bit about uh, our show our sort of intermediate show that we did uh, our open Apple 40.5 where we attempted to do some DVD commentary for an episode of the Goldbergs and I would not fault anyone for not having listened to that because it was a weird kind of thing we did and I don't know if it worked for anybody (laughs) Uh, but uh, apparently uh, Mark did in fact at least watched the episode and I guess yeah so he listened to our commentary it sounds like and uh we've mentioned we kind of poked a little bit of fun at uh this portion of the show where the the young kid character is uh listing the capabilities of the machine i guess the narrator is listing listing the capabilities of this uh this apple II that uh, that the kid is using and uh some of it was okay and some of it was just obviously numbers pulled out of uh ether that made no sense so uh pulled out of butts yes so they had mentioned that it was uh, a 16K Apple II Plus, is that right? Uh, yes. And that was actually, of course, a configuration that was available, uh, so we kind of gave them credit for that, but uh, as Mark points out, the, uh, the the 16K version of the Apple II Plus after after booting DOS, which used about 10.5K, uh, you really didn't have any memory left to do anything. So he uh, yeah, certainly no. could not have been running Loadrunner and Print Shop and so on like he was doing in the show with a 16K configuration. So it would have likely at least been a 48K setup. Yeah, as the uh, Lister Mark says, uh, props to the props department. Yeah, huh? yeah, huh? yeah. I think mm-hmm. I already made that joke, but I get to make it again. Um, (laughs) Props to them for uh, digging up some some great uh, authentic Apple II stuff and uh, filling the show with authentic Apple II software.
1: We had a lot of fun doing that, and we may end up doing something like that again in the future for, I don't know if it'll be necessarily show commentary, but uh, the reason we did it was because our interview with Randy, we weren't able to interview him until I think like the 18th or the 20th of this month, and it would have been a long gap between shows, and so we thought this would be some nice filler material. We did get a lot of positive emails and some tweets saying, yeah, we loved it. Not everyone did, though. Uh, Adam Hall wrote in and said, thanks for a great podcast, but please don't do another podcast like 40 5. I don't watch network or cable TV, and I like to listen to your podcast in my car, so this podcast had little value to me. <laughs> I also don't really have time in my life to somehow get a copy of this particular episode, download it, sync it with your commentary. So, unfortunately, this just got the immediate mark display in my iTunes, but I am looking forward to your next normal episode. Well, thank you, Adam, and we do appreciate the the feedback i will say that you wouldn't have had to download it you could just go to abc.go.com and watch it there but you know i do understand that it's not for everybody so um, no hard feelings adam and thanks for writing in
0: yeah we don't fault anyone for uh, just marking that one as played it was uh, it was a wacky <laughs> uh, wacky experiment we tried and uh hopefully yeah. uh, it sounds like some people did enjoy it so thanks uh, thanks for that so uh, that's i think do you have any more feedback mike or I have no more feedback. All right, well let's move on. And feedbackless. Yeah. <laughs> so let's move on to our uh, eBay segment on this show that where we don't talk about eBay. What's it worth to you? Hold on to your wallet as we look at the latest apple pickings. Uh, so I have, uh, just one quick item I, uh, acquired as, as I've, uh, elaborated on many times here on the show, I acquired a 2C plus at, uh, my first and only K-Fest and, mm. uh, I've been gradually kind of building it up and doing stuff with it. And, uh, I needed really for, for the software project that I'm working on, I really need a mouse and, uh, you know, the emulation in virtual two is great, but, uh, the physical mouse implementation on the 2C is actually different. Uh, there's some differences in how the uh, mouse data, how the pointer position accelerates and so on. So I needed to uh, have a mouse to test on real hardware to make sure that this uh, software thing I'm working on is going to work for everybody. So uh, I needed a mouse for my 2C and... Uh, it turns out that there's uh a lot of options and uh, i didn't actually uh realize all of the full history of mice on the uh, on the apple II. so uh uh so yeah the one that i uh, i scored was a mouse 2c which is let's see that is actually uh, the a2m4015 it was uh well it's uh, let's start at the beginning here so uh apple has kind of a hmm. a long and complicated history with mice it's one of those things that uh can be a little bit confusing if you're going on eBay and trying to buy a mouse for your 2C or if you've got a 2E with a mouse card, it can be very difficult to know what to buy. Uh, And you'll see a lot of older Macintosh mice tagged as Apple II items as well. And some of them work and some of them don't. And it can be hard to know what to buy. So, uh, luckily there is a great, uh, Wikipedia page on the Apple, on all Apple mice, including the Apple II versions. So, uh, some, someone in the Apple II community has no doubt created that because it's quite detailed and accurate. So, uh, whoever you are, thank you for that, which, uh, we will, of course, link to. So I get the very first mouse that Apple made was the Lisa mouse and uh that was uh, A9M0050 that's uh, great if you have a Lisa and not much use if you don't. So the very first Macintosh mouse was the M0100. That's uh kind of the one you would have seen with uh, the original Mac and or I suppose the Mac Plus maybe as well. The Lisa 2. Uh okay, good. Yeah, Lisa 2. So, uh let's see. So moving uh, along to the Apple 2s now. Uh Uh, The M0100 mouse does actually work on the 2C, I believe. Uh, Someone can correct me if I'm wrong there. But see, the one that maybe most people have probably seen with the uh, 2C is the A2M4015 and I believe again, I'm sure we'll be corrected if I'm wrong here, but uh, the uh, that's the one where uh, the mouse button is larger and it's rectangular and it's uh, kind of bent in the middle to conform to the shape of the mouse uh, much like the early Mac uh, Macintosh mice it, uh, were. The difference is that the button is uh, larger and it's flush with the top surface of the mouse rather than being proud of the surface and it has a much lighter click feel than uh, the early Macintosh mice did. So uh, to me, that's the most uh, lust-worthy version uh, of the Apple II mice. It's, uh, it's really a nice design, and uh, the button has a really soft, kind of nice feel. That is not quite the one that I got. Uh, it's the one that I would like, but that one is the hardest to find, and it goes for the most money on eBay. So there's also the A2M4035, and again, I apologize if I'm mixing up these numbers. I'm not 100% certain, certain I have them all correct. There's also versions, uh, for the two Apple II that look very much like the, uh, early Macintosh mice. And they have the slightly smaller rectangular button still bent in the middle, but that sits prouder of the surface. It has a little bit of a, a stiffer, uh, click feel to it. So, uh, so the, yeah, there's, there's lots of versions. Um, we're not gonna go into gory detail here. We're not a, a documentary or a, a reference show, but, uh, We'll link to this Wikipedia page. So if you're thinking about buying an Apple II mouse for your 2C or your 2E with a mouse card in it, you'll want to make sure you get one that will work with your particular Apple II. And this Wikipedia page has all of the gory details on that. Do you have any Apple IIs with mice, Mike?
1: I do. And in fact, uh, I do have a couple of the... Mac mouses, mice, mice that uh, have, have sort of shuffle around between whichever Apple II that I'm using at the time. I, I happen to like the Apple GS mouse, which is sort of, it's a little bit smaller, and it's kind of the, most of the top of the mouse is sort of angled down and away from you a little bit, so it's a natural resting position for your fingers. Um, I did find, so there's this the company called Sequential Systems that showed up later in the Apple II uh, lifespan. And they made a bunch of hardware and I think some software too. They make this thing called the BitMouse card. And I haven't seen them too often on eBay, but when they show up, they don't really go for that much. And I don't know if it's because the seller doesn't know how to properly describe what they are or the buyers it, don't clue into what it is. The BitMouse card is basically, it's a serial mouse interface adapter for your Apple II that allows you to use any PC serial mouse with your Apple II. Uh, so if you're having trouble finding a mouse, an Apple specific mouse or the one you want's really expensive. If you, if you can get this card, any serial mouse will work And on Apple on, on eBay. Those are available aplenty for cheap uh, plugs in. Obviously now this won't work for you to see because it takes up a slot. But any, any Apple II with slots can use this uh, card, and I don't think it requires – I don't have it in front of me at the moment. I don't remember it requiring a special driver software. Any, any software that will recognize the, the Apple II mouse card will also recognize this bit BitMouse card. And uh, it's, it's a cheap way to get access to a lot of mouses for your Apple II.
0: Cool. Yeah. It, uh, it definitely shouldn't require a driver. The, the you know, the nice thing about the, the Apple II is it, it's so simple in its hardware design that, uh, really all that's, that's needed is, uh, they, is, is for a card to conform to the, you know, the standard, uh, framework, uh, firmware mm-hmm. layout for where the, uh, the various, uh, you know, registers and soft switches and things that the Apple II expects to be there. So you can, make uh, fairly easily any mouse card conform to that and it will just work transparently with with software. So uh those were the days before uh, drivers and so on were needed. Indeed. I'll uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll second your uh, love of the 2GS mouse. I'm a big fan of that one. Uh I always liked uh, the lightweight of it and the light click on the button and uh yeah, yeah, it was a great mouse that uh, I spent many many hours with in my hand. Yeah, early Apple II mice are kind of a funny thing. Uh they're, you know, because they were so uh, it was so early in the lifespan of mice and so late in the lifespan of the Apple II that there wasn't a lot of software that supported it and there wasn't a good understanding of what mice were good for and how they should be used. So uh, there's a lot of quirky software that uses the mouse and uh, not very much of it. So <laughs> I should say, so it, it, yeah, they're, they're kind of funny. I mean, it, For me personally, I used mine most often with uh, Geos. I'm a big fan of Geos. In fact, there was a Mm, big Geos thread recently on uh, the Apple II Facebook page, and uh, that's where I used mine a lot.
1: As you were talking about that, it occurred to me it seems sort of – I don't know if counterintuitive is really the word, but I guess maybe a little odd to be talking about – all the mouse options that you have on an Apple II, which was a system that never really had an official GUI from Apple, the, you know, the eight bits anyway. The, obviously, the 2GS had had GSOS and, and and that sort of thing. But these earlier machines, you could buy an Apple a mouse card made by Apple with with a mouse, but there was no really operating system or anything that Apple made that that would take advantage of it. I would like you was a huge fan of GS, and in fact, I'm I'm I get jealous with rage every time our our Commodore friends talk about how awesome geos is on their platform because on the Apple II I think you have the basic I mean you got the basic Geos module and then a couple of add ons. Well and Commodore Geos has uh, the Commodore world, Geos has gained a, a huge second life, and there's all these add-ons and, and modules and neat things that you can do with it that are not available to me, and therefore I, I dislike all of our Commodore fans.
0: <laughs> For sure. Yeah, and I will say that uh, not, not only was Geos, I think, vastly underappreciated on the Apple II, I find – I have, have difficulty finding Apple II users who've even heard of it, never mind used it, and I spent thousands of hours in that environment uh, it's wonderful. Me too. Uh, but not only that, I think the Apple II version of Geos is quite underappreciated by Commodore users. Uh, at the time, when I was using GiOS on my Apple II, I had a Commodore friend who also was a big Geos user on, on his Commodore. And I went over there and used it, and it was terrible. (laughs) Uh, I mean, the interface is joystick-based, and the Commodore joysticks are digital. They're not analog, so you're using this clunky sort of accelerating digital mouse pointer thing. And it was really slow, and, oh, it was just dreadful. And I I just couldn't believe that this is what everyone was so excited about. And then I went back to my, you know, mouse-based, double high-res, you know, Hmm. uh, speedy Apple II version with fast disks and... You know, great, uh, uh, complex, uh, software like GeoWrite and GeoPaint and so on. So it was, yeah, it was stunning to me that, uh, after all I'd heard about how amazing the Commodore 64 Geos is, that, uh, this was what they were so excited about. <laughs> so that, of course, reinforced my Apple snobbery to no end. So, Absolutely. yeah, yeah, big Geos fan. I still have, uh, many, many a school project and term paper and so on, uh, forever locked up on Geos floppies. Uh, the one disadvantage it had was that it was a, it was a walled garden. They had their own disk formats and file formats and everything. So it, uh, it may be very difficult to get those documents off of those disks. Uh, they, they might be lost forever. I'm not sure. Uh, one of these days I'll dig those out of this storage, uh, room and, uh, and see if I can recover some of that.
1: I remember that, uh, later on in, in the life of my Apple IIe, we, we bought a, the, the CIDR 20 meg hard drive, and i i i don't i can't remember off the top of my head whether native support for that was built into geos or not i, I do know that i spent several hours on the phone with their technical support editing um hex uh um, sector editing geos software uh disks to get my my cider working in Geos, but once I did, it was it was neat, man. It was basically kind of yeah, a black and white version um, of of what you would get later on with the 2GS, where you could just double click the icon and the hard drive opens, which obviously is is what you have on every computer now. But at the time, it was just blew my mind that I could do that.
0: Totally, yeah. And the printer just worked, uh, which never mm-hmm. happened on Apple IIs. and uh, you could print anything anything you could see on the screen, you could print, which again, you know, was amazing. WYSIWYG editing and everything was amazing. Uh, you know, it had uh, the, the word processor was uh, so powerful. I mean, it was uh, very much like Multiscribe, uh, which I talked about earlier, kind of the what, what uh, I think might have been the first graphical WYSIWYG word processor for the two. And uh, uh, GeoWrite was just that, t- you know, times three, it was even better. Uh, Geo uh, GeoPaint was just a fantastic paint program. I really liked to make uh, pixel art back in the day, and so I would spent yeah. many many hours, hundreds of hours in in GeoPaint, drawing uh, drawing stuff. So, and you know they were so good. That whole environment was so good that when I first got my GS, I was a little bit disappointed actually, because in a lot of ways, GSOS was actually a step backwards. Uh, the UI was not as well integrated. The applications were not as well integrated uh, as as the GeoS stuff was. So uh, there was actually some uh, some uh, adjustment period there where I had to kind of almost get used to a worse standard in a couple of ways. Of course, the addition of color was big, you know, the support for hard drives and so on was much better. But uh, uh, yeah, in some ways, uh, it was actually worse than Geos. So uh, <laughs> I would definitely encourage anyone to give that a spin. So uh, that was a weird segment uh, about eBay that had almost nothing to do with eBay. <laughs> <laughs> so I hope you all enjoyed our our uh, mouse and Geos segment of the show.
1: Ah, we're awesome. They love us.
0: <laughs> so, well, like we said, with this is we don't talk about eBay on this show. So there you go. Started the eBay segment and did not talk about eBay.
1: But we do talk about weird games.
0: We do. This is my favorite new segment of the show. Once again, we'll insert some music here if we have any yet. I don't know. We're uh, we're working on new
1: plink plink plink, plink yes. piano. Plink. <laughs>
0: there you go. We're working on new bumpers for the show. By the way, if anyone's <laughs> wondering what yes. all this is about. Yeah, I, I love looking at weird games on the Apple II. And one of those I was going to discuss uh, was a game called Alter Ego, which was mm. sort of a, uh, I guess you'd call it a point-and-click kind of choose-your-own-adventure-like uh, psychological game. And it's a very weird thing, and it's also uh, really sexist and racist <laughs> and all <laughs> wow. sorts of other uh, ists and... I was going to talk about it, but then very recently in my RSS feed popped up a post by the digital antiquarian, uh, Jimmy Marr, hmm. I believe is his name. Yes. And he does. On the show. Yeah. Okay. Great. And he does these amazing, just deep dives on, uh, various companies and software packages, uh, from, uh, from this period in this platform. And he did a wonderful post on Alter Ego. And I could not attempt to cover this game as well as he did. Hmm. So I'm just going to link to that and, uh, we'll move on. <laughs> So,
1: just a quick word on Jimmy. You know, like I said, he was he was a guest on our show a while back, and one of the one of the things that we talked about was um, these these books are. There, there, there we go. These blog entries that he writes are amazing. And we kept wondering, well, why aren't you publishing this as, as a book? And then it, it occurred to me that if he does that, I'm going to have to pay for it. I'm getting it free this way. So, Jimmy, keep doing the blog entries. That's right. Uh, seriously, I, you know, I'd pay 50 bucks for a book if he compiled all that stuff. The, the writing that he does is is immensely deep and well done and and highly recommended for anyone who's interested in the history of the computer industry in general because he covers a lot more than just games i mean he talks about he's got blog entries on on certain companies and their history and and people and, and what they've done it's it's just a, an incredible resource
0: i'd like to give him a shout out too for the uh uh i guess uh what's the word sort of Kind of progressive awareness, I guess, of his posts. I don't know if that's the right way to to, to phrase that. He's uh, he's a real ally to to women in tech. Uh, he uh, he really gets uh, some of the challenges that we face, and uh, he you really see that in this alter ego post. He understands the perspective that that a woman would would have looking at alter ego, and uh, you know, and he po- his posts have a very um, open and inclusive tone. You know, he uh, he mixes up his default pronouns and. Uh, So he's just, yeah, a really terrific modern writer. So thank you for that article, Jimmy, which we will link to. So, uh, But Mike, yeah, why don't you uh, talk to me about Smurfs? (laughs) So
1: Quinn actually came up with the idea of doing these weird gaming things. And uh, each month she'll put an entry in a spreadsheet and that'll – somehow fire off some the one working synapse in my brain and I'll (laughs) come up with something and I don't know what the relationship here is. Other than that, this, well no, there's no other than. This is it sort of got me thinking about the first total conversion I played was actually a game called Castle Smurfenstein. And this was a total conversion of the Castle Wolfenstein game where the guys, it's a guy and his friend, and I don't have his name in front of me. We'll have the links in the show notes. They basically hated the Smurfs. And so they went through and replaced everything, uh, all the skins and the graphics and the sounds with you killing Smurfs. And in fact, the game even starts out with a little bit of the Smurf theme with, you know, a scream of one of them dying. And I just, so that to me was this, this total conversion that, Kind of caught on. I, all my friends had it and I had it and it was everywhere and it, it's still, you know, definitely out there if you want to play it. And emulation kind of a fun sort of project. And um, there's a I think two web pages now uh, detailing the history of this game and definitely worth a read.
0: Cool. Well, we will uh, link to that. So, uh, so, so, yeah, so speaking of, of weird hacks that somehow uh, managed to spread throughout the world, uh, so our earlier email with uh, with listener Herbert uh, about the Gravis, he actually mentioned uh, Task Force, which was one of my favorite Apple IIgs games. Brought to memory the uh, the swear hack for Task Force. Now, this is something that it must have been spread wide because if a teenager in a small city in Canada managed to acquire it, surely all of you big bad Americans must all have it. But uh, it's very difficult to find anything about this thing online. I've never been able to find a disc image of it online, unfortunately, so I don't have a link that I can share, uh, but I... Hope to be able to just dis- dig my floppy out of storage and image it uh, as soon as I can find it. Uh, and hopefully it's still readable. But so what this was, Task Force was what we would nowadays call a, uh, a fight and go right game in the no, <laughs> no quarter uh, lingo. Uh, it's a side scrolling game where two players can play simultaneously, one on keyboard and one on Mac, uh, one, <laughs> one on keyboard and one on joystick, for example. <laughs> It's, uh, yeah, you're just, you're both playing uh, police officers, I believe, uh, like, drug enforcement agents or uh, FBI or something, some kind of, like, high-level uh, agents. You're uh, running, gunning uh, sideways, uh, shooting enemies that come at you. You know, a slightly more modern equivalent might be something like, uh, in the style of, like, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles or the Simpsons game, if you played those types of uh, four-player ups in the arcade. It's similar, very similar. Really, really nicely written game. It's fast and smooth and has fantastic sound. It's really one of the top 2GS games. Uh, definitely worth playing. It's in its original incarnation and it's deep. There's a lot of levels. The cities, there's many different cities that you go to and they all have different backgrounds and different weapons. You know, the weapons are fantastic. There's lasers and missile launchers and everything explodes and the frame rate is great. So. Really a terrific game. So, but someone somewhere along the way took this game and hacked up all of the uh, audio files. There's, uh, so as you're shooting these bad guys, they're yelling things at you and complaining and dying with various screams and things and someone ripped all those out and replaced them all with naughty words so, <laughs> so the cops are swearing at the enemies and the bad guys are swearing back and uh, as uh, as a teenager uh, me and my friends all uh, tittered with glee at all of these bad words that were coming out of our, our uh, video game and it's really quite it's definitely an adult version of the game it's uh, the, it's very strong language it's uh, paired with the, the violence that was already there in the game uh, it definitely makes for a very adult experience and uh, it's actually quite a lot of fun to play it that way. Uh, It's a bit like, you know, watching, uh, you know, like it's sort of the... Equivalent of watching something like *Walking Dead* now, where it's um, you know a very adult experience, and sort of the level of of grimness and language and visuals that are that are in it, it makes the game much more sort of intense, I guess might be the word. So uh, yeah, I hope to be able to find this somewhere, or if listeners uh, have uh, know of this and uh, can <laughs> reassure me that I'm not making this up, I definitely remember it. Uh, I remember. Uh, waiting till my parents left, so I could crank up the uh, stereo and connect to the GS and play this uh, with my friends, and without gasps of uh, horror coming from downstairs. <laughs> oh my goodness! <laughs> so I don't suppose you've ever played this or seen this or
1: never heard of it. I never, I would never heard of Task Force for the 2 gs so.
0: Okay, so yeah, we can certainly link to gameplay of Task Force. Uh, there's uh, videos of that online. Uh, the swear hack is, uh, yeah, it seems to be a ghost. I've I've Googled and never found a single reference to it online, but. Uh, It definitely exists, and I didn't make it, and nobody I knew made it. It came from a BBS, so it, it, it exists out there.
1: Sounds like a horror movie title. It came from the BBS.
0: <laughs> yeah, but at this point, I mean, the 2GS community, I feel like this is the equivalent of a snuff film. You know, there's, oh, it's, it's it, like it's rumored and nobody believes it really exists and few have seen it and it's this, you know, passed secretly from hand to hand, you know, it's sort of.
1: Probably not quite as horrifying as a snuff
0: well, film. Well, no, I, that's perhaps the, the wrong analogy to draw. Maybe a, <laughs> an underground porn or something. I there don't know. It's, it's definitely
1: underground porn.
0: Yes, it's definitely adult and it's definitely illicit and it's definitely hard to find. So whatever your preferred analogy for that is. So.
1: And if you happen to locate it and you let us know, Quinn will be your best friend. <laughs>
0: That's right. I will. And uh, yeah, now that we've made its presence known to more people, uh, I'm sure it will uh, become more available. I'm sure some, uh, like I said, yeah, someone has it. Definitely. Like I say, if, you know, if a teenager in in Canada had it, then someone out there in this community definitely has it. And I just, for whatever reason, has either not been imaged or it's buried somewhere on Asimov with some obscure file name that you wouldn't guess. And (laughs) so I just haven't been able to find it, but uh, Googling has certainly not turned it up and I can't find any gameplay video of it. So. Uh, we will uh endeavor to uh fix that ourselves or uh find someone who has
1: and in the meantime, Ivan Drucker has been busy
0: he has indeed, so uh let's that's a smooth segue to, a smooth our, yes, to our to our new ish uh tech segment uh, insert bumper music if we have it here. Ivan Drucker has indeed been busy, and uh so if you are not familiar with Ivan, he's of course probably best known for the uh a two server and um a two cloud. Uh, pair of uh, software packages which are lots of fun for getting your Apple IIs and your Raspberry Pis talking to each other and talking to the internet and so on So, Ivan uh, has uh, graced us with the privilege of announcing a new product on the show. He's just recently finished working on something called Magic GoTo. So, uh, Hmm. you may know Ivan's uh, earlier work on something called Magic GoSub, which was a nifty tool that allows you to uh, go sub to labels in AppleSoft rather than line numbers. So... Uh, Ivan kind of has this overall goal. You know, he's been a passionate uh, promoter of structured AppleSoft for a while, and uh, part of that goal is to sort of eliminate line numbers as, as a thing that you need to worry about in AppleSoft. So, uh, you know, he's got a system of developing AppleSoft where he basically writes the code without line numbers and kind of just has a tool that just throws in line numbers at the end uh, when he's done. And so part of that goal is to be able to create all of the branching and looping structures you might need uh without relying on line numbers so magic gosub has been a great first step on that uh, so you can go sub to uh, a label that's hidden in a, in a rem statement magic gosub will uh just make that work uh so it's great wow. uh and it's something you can plug into any applesoft program there's no nothing you need to to be load or anything uh it just and it just kind of works so uh, building on that, he's now released Magic GoTo, which does the same thing for GoTo statements. So you can now go to something by label rather than line number. And uh, once again, you can uh, incorporate that without, if you wish you can incorporate that without any kind of be loading or, or assembly language component. Uh, you can do everything with Applesoft. Yeah, a really cool tool. Uh, we will link to that. He's got examples and documentation about how it all works. For the programmers in the audience. It's a great tool and a fun read.
1: I went to go to there.
0: <laughs> I see what you did there. So, uh, yeah. so uh, and related to that, I just want to give another sh- quick shout out to Ivan's Product Slammer, which uh, yeah, uh, it really pairs well with Magic Go to Magic Go Sub and these various other programming tools. It's kind of the magic glue that lets you do all this stuff with no assembly language or be loading at all, if you don't want to to do that. So, uh, what uh, Slammer allows you to do is kind of a, a suite of tools that let you uh, take some assembly language code. And convert it into this really mind bending, uh, blob of AppleSoft that you can then stick at the top of your AppleSoft program, like in lines, you know, zero to nine, where you can just kind of ignore it. Uh, and once it's in there, then it will automatically enable all this kind of stuff. Uh, it will sort of allows you to, execute assembly language code without having to actually uh, have a separate file or do anything with data statements or anything messy like that. So we will link to his uh, KFES presentation uh, on Slammer if you have not seen that. It's quite the bit of voodoo. I really like Slammer. It, he basically found a way to, he's, well, he's created a tool that allows you to convert normal 6502 assembly language into a subset of the language that only includes opcodes that can be represented in printable ASCII. So uh, wow, cool. once, yeah, so, you know, there's no, for example, LDA, the opcode LDA maps to a hex value that is not an ASCII character. So you couldn't put it in an Apple soft program, but you know, there's 20 or so other assembly language instructions in when put in series are equivalent to an LDA. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, it's fantastic. So he's got this, uh, so he figured out how to do all this conversion and then wrote a program to kind of automate that. Once you've done that, then you can stick uh, this sort of string of gibberish at the top of your Applesoft program, and it's all printable ASCII, so you can save it and load it and so on. Then Applesoft can kind of be tricked into into running this code uh, as though it were assembly language, and because they're all valid, you know, opcodes, uh, it can be run that way. So uh, I'm not doing it justice. It's a really nifty tool, and it pairs beautifully with uh, Magic O2 and uh, Magic Sub. so we will link to all of that.
1: I think it's really awesome that People are still thinking about how to improve and update something as old and I guess what we consider stayed as Applesoft Basic and that there's still new life to be had in this stuff. I, on the Apple 3, when they released Business Basic, they did away with pokes and peeks. The idea was that, that you could write your assembly language code, stick it anywhere you want in memory, and as long as you gave it a name, you could you could invoke it from your Basic program by this process called invocables, um, and it sounds it sounds very similar to kind of what Ivan's doing here by trying to not only sort of do away with some of the older crufty parts of AppleSoft, like you know line numbers and things, but improving and and building on on the um, on the existing platform and, and in a way that that's useful today for anyone who wants to code on the Apple II.
0: What I like about Ivan's tools is that he, d- he doesn't use this, the normal extensive, extensibility points in AppleSoft. So, you know, tribute to AppleSoft's original design. It's extensible in a couple of ways. Uh, you know, the USR function and the ampersand are the two most common. Of course, the problem if you use those for your tool is that now you can't use that for anything else. So there's lots of great ampersand extensions to AppleSoft, but, uh, you know, if you, you kind of have to pick one because you can only extend from that point once. So Ivan kind of avoids using that ever, and uh, it's great. That means you can use his stuff in concert with any of your favorite ampersand uh, graphics libraries or whatever that you might have for AppleSoft. So uh, yeah, it's it's a real tribute to AppleSoft that uh, even today it's still I think most kind of Apple II hobbyists' go-to language for doing you know little stuff aside from writing full-blown games. Uh, you know, if you have a little hardware project, you wanna you know talk to uh for example the uh the roller coaster and rocket launcher that was shown at K-Fest this year you know you can it's so easy <laughs> to awesome. it was awesome and applesoft you know has a great balance of high level structure uh and access with while well, retaining access to the hardware you can still peek and poke and you can talk to the joystick port and and all of that so it's a great great kind of high level uh, let's call it a mid level language for uh <laughs> for interacting with the <laughs> hardware so AppleSoft uh, was an amazing design back then, and it still is.
1: And Ivan is not the only one still thinking about how to improve the Apple II. In fact, Waz himself recently uh, was exchanging emails with Mike Willegal. Um, you probably know Mike's name from his Apple One registry. He's done the uh, he does those uh, those fantastic Apple One uh, replicas, and so I don't know if. Those are not always on sale, but if they are, I highly recommend picking one up if you're an electronics hobbyist and you want to experience the Apple one. But he was exchanging, and he's been on the show with us, actually. So, friend of the show. Uh, he's been exchanging some emails with Waz recently. I forget what the topic was, but if Waz mentioned, I, I guess that, like, he woke up, and the way he kind of put it was f- sort of funny. It reminded me of, like, he's on safari in Brazil or something, and he had this fevered uh, malaria dream and woke up, and, and the result of that was that he could, um, that, that he thought of a way to reduce the number of chips in the Apple II even more. Uh, obviously, he doesn't have malaria or anything like that, but I, it's funny that he still thinks and dreams about this stuff 38 years later.
0: Yeah, that's right. And in that same conversation, he mentioned he found a way to, a trivial way that he didn't actually specify, but uh, a trivial way to distinguish between the two grays, you know, as as many people know in uh, in low-res graphics, and uh, I believe also double high-res, there's two shades of gray that are identical, uh, because one is uh, an AAA bit pattern, one is a 555 bit pattern, which uh, they're technically different bit patterns, but they map to the same uh, shade of gray, and uh, so he found, uh, was thought of a, a trivial way to to, dis- to make those two grays different. And uh, he said it was added no additional chips. So there's been a lot of speculation amongst the hardware hobbyists what that might be. Probably the addition maybe of, a, of an RC circuit of some sort, a little resistor capacitor here or there, or possibly uh, throw a diode in somewhere. So, yeah, there's been some funny uh, and interesting speculation about what he uh, what was was thinking of there because he didn't actually say. He just said he thought of a way with no additional chips. So... Uh, <laughs> Fun to think about. So speaking of uh, hardware, something that uh, we don't talk a lot about on this show, but uh, probably we should uh, when you uh, when you buy an Apple II and you need to maybe do some maintenance or uh, preservation or repairs on it. Uh, What uh, what's your thought on that, Mike?
1: Well, I stumbled across a thread uh, on the classic computing mailing list, and I'm I'm sure most of our listeners are members of that already. Not a lot of Apple II-specific content there, but there is a lot of just general good hardware troubleshooting tips and techniques you can learn there. There was a topic somebody brought up that they had purchased it was like a monitor, or a new computer, or something, and they were uh, talking about you know whether they should should just recap uh, the whole machine, you know, put new capacitors in, or whether there was a way to reform the the caps that were existing, and what was the best technique for that. And that sort of got me thinking, like, so when I buy an Apple Three, for example, uh, these things are notorious, and I don't know if it's because just the, the vendor that they chose or there was, you know, something about the power supply, the the caps tend to go on almost all of these things. So the first thing I do when I get an Apple Three is just recap the whole machine. And But it got me thinking about other techniques that because all of this hardware is going to die eventually and there's nothing we can do about that, it's inevitable. Uh, but we can extend the, the lives of these things for as long as we can by certain, you know, there's certain preventive maintenance techniques that we can use and I know that like uh, one person, it may have been Michael Mahone, or Mayan or however you pronounce it, sorry Mike, uh, suggested once, you know, like I think he pulled out all of his hardware once a year and turned it on, plug it in, turn it on for a couple of hours just to kind of get the, you know, the make sure that the electrolytics don't dry out and, and make sure everything is still up and running. And it got me, you know, cause I do the cap replacement, but because of his suggestion, I also make sure that I turn on all my gear every now and then and just let it run for a while let the juice, go through it. But I, I kind of wonder what other people do to preserve their hardware because as stuff gets harder and, you know, obviously the, the documentation is out there and you can, you can buy or download PDFs for everything, but the parts, sometimes get hard to find or you know to to replace and and you want to keep the costs down while still maintaining your hardware and keeping it running in good conditions and it got me thinking what other people do what their pm t- tips might be and quinn if you have any that now'd be a great time to share them
0: yeah i mean preservation and restoration of old hardware is a it's a bit more maybe than, uh, more art than science, it seems like. There's, uh, you know, if you Google this kind of stuff, there's a lot of opinions out there and everyone has their own, uh, techniques. And, uh, I think there's a lot of disagreement on what's a good idea and what's not and what works and what doesn't. But, uh, yeah, that this classic computing thread is, is interesting. Uh, they talk about this, this idea of applying voltage to capacitors in a particular way to rejuvenate them rather to sort of bring them back from the dead rather than replacing them and uh, it's an interesting technique and uh, i believe it does work to to some degree um i'm personally not a huge fan of that i would rather replace capacitors with uh modern components you're definitely uh right on the money with uh the the in general electrolytic capacitors are the weak point on these old machines and frankly on a lot of modern stuff too it's it's almost a conspiracy of sorts uh there's this uh <laughs> there's this thing called the capacitor plague which i don't know if we've talked about on the show but Briefly, we have. Um, Okay, so yeah, there is, in fact, this uh, definite uh, problem with this whole generation of electrolytic capacitors that were all – came out of uh, one or two or three particular factories in Taiwan, and at some particular point in time, these capacitors are all just sort of got – Sent out into the world and incorporated into electronics of all shapes and sizes. And those capacitors were made incorrectly and are now all failing at, at uh, startling rates. We're just uh, we're still now dealing with the fallout of that. So we'll link to there's a great uh, Wikipedia article on, on the capacitor plague, and we'll uh, we'll link to that. But uh, so the yeah, your main culprits in Apple twos are going to be the power supplies, of course. That's where the big electrolytic caps are. And uh, what I like to do personally, my approach is to do a visual inspection, uh, which I recently did on my own 2C+, and uh, I wrote a blog entry on that, which I will link to, plug, plug, plug. So my approach is to do a visual inspection. Uh, If a if a cap is going to be a problem, you can usually tell by looking at it visually. You can, you know, it'll be bulging is the most common uh, warning sign. If a capacitor has uh, isn't you know nice and flat and square, if it's leaking at all, if you see any orange or green goo coming out of it, uh, if the top is bulging at all, if there's any white crusty stuff anywhere around it, so. Uh, anything that doesn't, if the capacitor looks anything other than brand new, basically, which it should, I mean, you know, the power supplies are enclosed, so they really don't get uh, particularly dusty or dirty in there. So uh, if they've been somewhat decently taken care of, the the components Mm -hmm. should look basically new. So if they don't, that's when I go ahead and replace them. There's a bit of a risk-reward calculation here because I definitely can see the value in preventatively replacing this stuff uh, just because, you know, when capacitors do fail, They can have a tendency to take other stuff with them, you know, especially in power supplies, but uh, the trade-off is anytime you touch something, you risk breaking it. So, you know, if you're going (laughs) to replace the caps, you're talking about applying, you know, heat from your desoldering gun or your solder wick to the PCB, and anytime you apply heat, you risk possibly damaging something. You can lift traces, you can damage nearby components if you're not careful. So, I think we all have to make that uh, calculation for ourselves whether the risk of touching things is worth the potential value of preventative replacement so yeah my personal approach is to do a visual inspection and if the caps all look good and the other thing I look for is uh, soot or burn marks uh, any kind of uh, power component like a uh, uh, power resistors or power transistors uh, they're running at high temperatures you know if they've been if they're failing you know components that run at high power will fail over time and as they start to fail they have to start working harder to overcome their own internal resistance and they'll create more and more heat so if you see any kind of charring or anything uh, on a circuit board that means that component's been working harder than it should so it's uh, it's going to start failing and uh, so that's a good sign to, to replace things so and uh, also making sure to clean up uh, soot on circuit boards if you do see it you know if soot accumulates enough it is actually uh, can, can conduct so you can actually get some short circuits in there if the soot collects too much. So uh, that's another thing I'll look for. And of course, goes without saying if you have a 2GS, uh, check that battery because those will leak. Uh, and those are uh, battery, <laughs> yeah, battery leakage is absolutely cancer on on computers. It uh, it's very hard to get rid of once it's there. So.
1: Randy brandt guy, our our interviewee this this month uh, gave me one of his old apple two g s s and he pulled it out of storage and there was battery goo all over the board and mm. it had eaten into chips and, mm. and man i've I've spent a lot of time cleaning it up and fortunately, I think the only really badly damaged chip was the the composite signal generation. So I can't use a composite monitor, but everything else seems to work. Okay. But man, it, and if you open it today, you can still see where it's kind of eaten. the. the, It has that sort of the, the whitish, coloration around the area where it's kind of eaten into the PCB seal mm-hmm. and, and uh it's just really an u- it was just really an ugly mess. So definitely um if you're going to store these things long term, take the batteries out.
0: Yeah, yeah, on the subject of preventative replacement, uh you know, while while I don't always do it on capacitors, the battery is absolutely a no-brainer. Uh, even if it looks good, you know, just cut that thing off. Yeah, <laughs> if it if it if it's not <laughs> leaking now, it, you know, it's 20 years old and it's going to leak soon. So uh, and that that stuff really is it's it's cancer. So this infects old pinball machines as well. My other hobby, and uh, I recently uh, had to deal with that on a machine that that I bought, the aforementioned Johnny Mnemonic, and uh, it had battery leakage on the on the main uh, system board. I cleaned it all up, uh, replaced the batteries, and everything looked good. And a couple weeks later, I looked in there and there was more crystals in the same area. So Oof. that's, it's really like cancer. If you don't get all of the <laughs> corrosion and, and, and the alkaline crystals out of there, they spread again. So it's uh, it's nasty stuff. So you got to get it out of there.
1: And, and those are all really great tips. Thank you, Quinn, for sharing those. And, and our listeners out there, if you guys have any, any techniques or tips that, that you have that you've found that help you preserve your Apple II's and keep them up and running, uh, let us know. We'll be happy to share them on the show.
0: I'm interested to hear about uh, uh, Michael Mahon's technique as well. I haven't actually heard that one about kind of powering it up to um, keep the capacitors uh, juiced up or whatever. I, I'm honestly not familiar with that, and uh, I'm interested to hear if other people do that. It uh, it makes a certain kind of sense, uh, you know. For example, with old cars, you definitely want to do that because you know cars are not meant to sit; they're meant to move. If you let them sit, then seals dry out and uh, the oil runs out of the uh, bearings and so on, so you always want to you know run your car every couple of weeks uh, even if you 're not using it uh, for the same reason, so I wonder if it 's the same th- uh, with old computers
1: yeah, it may not have been michael i 'm pretty sure it was well i 'll find i 'll find the link to that and uh We'll we'll share that. And I think that pretty much brings us to the end of another No Quarter podcast. Yeah. This is not no quarter. This is Open Apple. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I do that show so much more often than I do this one that my brain just goes, Oh, no quarter, that's what we're talking about. <laughs> Sorry folks, this is open apple and, and um, you know, Carrington's been a great host this month. I mean Quinn has been a great host. <laughs>
0: wow. You are so off at of this show. But once again, please keep, yes. but please keep doing all the editing.
1: Yeah, seriously, everybody, thanks for uh, listening and all the great feedback. And, uh, you know, I, I definitely am having a great time doing the show. And uh, it looks like people are enjoying what we're putting out. So um, we'll keep
0: doing it. Continue to let us know what you think. Uh, you can email podcast at open-apple.net. And uh yeah this was a this was a long one. We had lots of fun news to talk about this uh this month. And we had a great interview. Yeah, thanks thanks again to Randy for joining us here in the studio. Uh it was great to have him on the show. So uh until next month, this has been Open Apple. has been the open apple podcast find more episodes read our blog or send feedback by visiting us on the web at www.open-apple.net
2: excited that it seemed like a good christmas present for you so uh i couldn't believe that leave that Believe that leave that leave that Believe that leave that leave that leave that, leave that. Leave that. Leave that. Leave that.
0: Wow, I've n- never heard Skype malfunction like that before.
2: Believe
0: that, air brought to you by Skype. Skype, sucking
2: since 2001.
3: Well, that was the original philosophy behind the cassette tape, the cassette uh, input ports. But I got to experimenting with them, and I found out that you can do other things with them besides just load and save programs. Uh, What they really did was they detected zero crossings of a sound wave. So if you took a tape recorder and you put in anything, not just a program, but music, you could play the music into the cassette port. And if you sampled the cassette port and and toggled the built-in speaker in in phase with what was being seen on the cassette port, you could actually hear the music coming through the speaker. And that would, of course, work for human speech as well. But instead of just merely reproducing it through the speaker, since it's a computer, you could actually store that information in memory and play it back later. And so that was the birth of Apple Talker. You could record your voice restore it into the computer, and then play it back later through the built-in speaker. Well, I I remember I was laying in bed uh, 6 o'clock in the morning, and I was kind of half thinking about the computer. I don't know why. I guess I have weird thoughts at times. And I was laying in bed, and it suddenly occurred to me, hey, what happens if you take sound... You know, because all you're doing when you play a program is you're, you're taking a tape, which it doesn't the tape doesn't know if it's got a program on it or what. It's just storing sounds. And so I said, hey, what happens if you put some other sound in? What would happen? And I remember I, got, I was so excited. I got out of bed and rushed and wrote a little program to try it out. And it actually worked. And I was so excited. <laughs> Uh, I'd been doing lots of stuff on the Apple, and of course, I guess Apple knew about what the stuff I was doing. In fact, I later found out from Jeff Raskin, who was working at Apple at the time, uh, every time I'd send a new cassette tape up to Apple with one of my games, he said everybody would close down the entire engineering department and sit and play my game all afternoon. (laughs) (laughs) So they knew about me, but they never bothered contacting me. Well, one day I went up to uh, uh, the West Coast Computer Fair up in San Francisco. From, I was living in, in in L.A. area at the time. And uh, while I was up there, uh, Atari, uh, the game manufacturer, contacted me. And they wanted me to come for an interview. So I said, okay. So I went up and talked with them. And they showed me around the labs and everything. In fact, while I was walking through the lab, I noticed that a uh, cartridge sitting on one of the lab benches and I walked over and looked at it and it said, Apple Talker. <laughs> 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 and apparently they were experimenting with my Apple Talker technique also. Oh, cool. Anyway, make a long story short, they eventually made me a job offer. But I didn't want to leave JPL because I was working at JPL and I was happy there. So I turned them down. So about a week or two later, they come back and they offer me more money. So I said, well, I guess maybe they must really want me badly. So... I gave my rent notice to JPL and accepted the offer at, that Atari offered me. Three days later, I got a phone call from Apple, and they said they wanted to talk to me. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, I'm, I've already accepted a job offer from somebody else. And they said, yeah, we know all about it, but you, we want to talk to you anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so they, they flew me up, and that's when I talked with Waz and, and Mike, M- Mike Markula, the president of the company, Tom Whitney, the executive vice president. And the four of us sat around all Saturday afternoon. And they were answering anything I wanted to know. They held no secrets back, no, any, anything, any question I asked, they gave, me, they gave me answers to. And they wanted me to come work for them. And so they topped Atari's offer, <laughs> the second offer from Atari. <laughs>